Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to another bonus edition of The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. As I mentioned last Tuesday, I'm making available to listeners of The Thriller Zone the audiobook version of my thriller, The Poser, starring rookie detective Pat Norelli. So what do you say we get into The Thriller Zone with chapters 26 to 50 of The Poser? Chapter 26. Pink Taco. We approached Beverly Hills in short order, pulling into the Hollywood Mole studio lot. Stuart ran in for a snack and a soda at the 7-Eleven next door, while I stayed put chomping on a bonk breaker bar and sipping at water. I turned on the radio just in time to catch the eagle singing Hotel California. I found it interesting how we were parked on Sunset Boulevard facing Chateau Marmont, a hotel that had always made me think of their album cover. Watching construction trucks enter and exit the lot, I tapped the steering wheel to the beat of the song. According to a small billboard at the entrance, the studios were in the middle of a major renovation, transforming the recent Pink Taco restaurant into a state-of-the-art broadcast facility. The building's prior life was Wolfgang Puck's original Spago, better known as the place Swifty Lazar held his world-renowned post-Oscar parties. Scanning the action, I wondered where Bobby's car was parked. From my vantage point, I could see the main entrance where we saw Bobby hit whom we assume was a co-worker. I spotted cameras in the upper corners of the building entrance and thought of Carrie and Jessica, wondering if either of them were in that video. Observing people enter and exit the building, I was surprised at how many fit the description of the woman in the video. Not able to suppress my need to snoop, I backed out of the visitor section and pulled around to the employee lot. Since the back half of the building was still experiencing renovations, I counted on traffic being increased. Plus, the gate was locked in the up position, the guard looked well over 60, and he appeared distracted by a TV screen. Thus, I was sure I had a good chance of getting in without hassle. I undid my top button for backup. Hi, I'm Detective Norelli. Julia King asked me to circle the driveway. Something about a car break-in a couple of nights ago. I'll be in and out in a jiff. As expected, he spent the first 10 seconds looking from my eyes to my blouse and the next 10 eyeballing my badge. I started a slow roll to show I wasn't planning to hang around. His lackluster attire and negligent nod told me he gave not a shit. Passing several construction vehicles, I circled the lot until I saw our boy's car. A school bus yellow Porsche Cabriolet 911 was not hard to spot. Being a gearhead, I knew the flat-six twin-turbo 580-horsepower beast redlined around 7,200 and cost more than I made the last two years. Or more. Slowing to a crawl, I checked over my shoulder to see if the guard could see me. His view was blocked by a concrete mixer, so I parked, got out, and quickly circled Bobby's car. On the front floorboard was a gym bag, spent water bottles, and an enormous tub of protein powder. Checking the side door pockets, I didn't see much, but had an idea. The security on these cars were great if you tried to open the door or jack a window. But if you were to slice open the convertible roof, it was fair game. Which is exactly what I was about to do. 
Having previously scanned a lot, I knew there were no cameras covering this area, and given the quality of the cameras covering their front doors, the most important part of their security, I had no fear I would be seen. Returning to my car, I retrieved a notepad and small baggie. In order to avoid any attention, I walked around several cars, pretending to take notes before circling back to Bobby's car. Taking a small knife from my belt, I made an insignificant slice in the edge of the roof on the passenger side. Looking at my cell phone with my left hand, I inserted a bag of evidence into the slit with my right hand and pushed it toward what would be the back seat, if there were one. In the next second, my phone pinged with a text from Stuart wondering where I was, so I parked and went in, feeling more happy than guilty. Chapter 27 Mount Everest Entering the TV studio lobby, I found Stuart sitting atop a skinny, modern couch flipping through a People magazine. He was much too large for such a small couch. The look on his face said pain. As I approached, he tossed the rag on the oversized glass coffee table. How's your tummy, pal? It's further south of you, must know. What are you up to? What? Nothing. Waiting on you. He cocked his head to the side, eyeballing me funny. You look like the cat who ate the canary. Yep, that's me. Munching canaries and protein bars. Making our way to the reception desk, I whispered, If you must know, I scoped out Bobby's car and made a little insurance plan. What? Never you mind, and it's only backup. Anyway, let's get in and work him over. According to our friend Ms. King, HR must be present if we need to speak with him. That's going to complicate matters. We'll work around it. Which one do you want to play? While he pondered, I planted a sincerely fake smile so the receptionist would know we're ready. She acknowledged and dialed her phone. Mm, he's an ape and you're a babe. Why don't we mix it up and you be the asshole, he winked. Perfect. Within seconds, a buttoned-up and overweight middle-aged school teacher of a woman joined us in the lobby. Hi, I'm Janelle Everest. Bobby's been informed you're here. And we're meeting in the conference room if you'll follow me, she said, walking away without awaiting a response. Warm bunch, huh? Stewart said quietly. I couldn't help but notice how everyone was eyeballing us like we weren't wearing pants. What's that about? I mumbled. They know you're cops, Ms. Everest said without missing a beat. We shrugged, following our tour guide into a brightly lit conference room. Please wait here. I'll be right back. And can I assume this won't take long? We have a show to do? I bit my tongue as Stuart pleasantly said, Yes, ma'am. We don't expect to be longer than 10 or 15 minutes. And thank you. She grew an instant fake smile and left. Can I assume this won't take long? I mockingly whined. I have a buffet to devour. <laughs> Stuart snorted, shaking his head. I know, I know, I'm a bitch. Ten minutes passed with no sign of Bobby. I shifted my focus from an oversized monitor to Stuart who was checking email on his phone. I'd read every award on their glory wall and was this close to counting ceiling tiles when Miss Everest entered the room without Bobby. I'm so sorry. Bobby's kind of the star around here, being the main director and also... Uh, he asked if you wouldn't mind waiting just a few more minutes, she said, expressionless. As much as I wanted to be nice, it wasn't going to be possible. Stepping forward, Stuart instantly anticipated where I was going and took my arm while smiling big for our friend. Ms. Everett, I think. Everest, like the mountain, it's not Everett. Sorry, uh, Ms. Everest, I'm not sure if you understand, or rather if Mr. Shapiro understands, but we are police officers, detectives technically, but from the Los Angeles Police Department. He doesn't really get a choice in the matter. He needs to come and speak with us. 
not in a few more minutes, but now, as in immediately. I personally couldn't take her smug expression any longer. Or, I began, allowing the change in authority and volume to get her attention, if Mr. Shitbag doesn't get his Neanderthal ass in here inside the next five minutes, I will personally see that he is arrested for... I advanced two steps closer, holding up fingers to count off. One, for obstructing justice. Two, for failure to comply with a murder investigation. And three... For possession of illegal narcotics. Am I making any sense? Are we crystal clear? Do you understand what I'm saying, Ms. Everrest? The color had left her face about the time I said shit back. She swallowed hard. Yes, officer. No, detective. Patricia. Norelli. Yes, detective Norelli. Right away. Another hard swallow, and she was down the hall like her shoes were on fire. When's the last time you referred to yourself as your proper first name? Me? Never. And illegal narcotics? Is that what you meant by... Yes, and shut it. I nodded to the ceiling. These rooms aren't private. I really enjoyed that. Much longer, and I'm sure it would have turned into a smackdown. Oh, boyfriend? She does not want to tangle with me. It's been a week of reality bitch-slapping me in the face, and at least for now, we have the only murder suspect in a case we've got to solve sooner then later, he put up both hands. Oh, I feel you. Chapter 28. Badass and Mofo. Another ten minutes passed when I saw Ms. Everest coming down the hall, again without our suspect. She had a terrified look on her face, and I felt heat simmer in my chest. Officer, I mean, Detective Norelli, uh, mi uh, <clears throat> Mr. Shapiro said that he was... Busy and couldn't be disturbed right now, but he could schedule... I didn't let her finish. Instead, I motioned for Stuart to follow my lead, brushing past her, heading down the same hall from which she had just come. I pushed through a set of double doors with flashing red lights overhead, and seconds later was standing in front of an enormous glass-enclosed room full of people. Dozens of television monitors covered an entire wall. I spotted Bobby down front, in between two guys pushing colored buttons on huge boards. I checked over my shoulder for my backup and kept moving. Bobby was wearing a headset, waving his arms and calling shots. Grab the B-roll. Okay. Ready one. Take one. Ready two. Hold it. Hold it. Someone frowned at me, standing to stop me. I gave her a look and proceeded with my approach. Bobby Shapiro, Detectives Norelli and Brown, can we have a word with you? He looked at me, frowned, shook his head, then returned to the screen. Ready two. Take two. Okay. Ready to wipe in lower third. I stepped closer, wipe, putting my hand on his shoulder. Now get... He stopped, looked at my hand, and yelled, Cut! Without taking his eyes off my hand. The room stopped. He looked up at me and growled, What the fuck are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm conducting an investigation, I said, turning to Stuart. And we want to speak with you right now. I wasn't prepared for Bobby's size. As he stood, I estimated him at about 6'6" about 285. He reminded me of The Rock, but with hair. Can't you see I'm in the middle of a show? I told Miss Everett I could not be disturbed. As he looked in her direction, all heads followed to find her cowering behind the glass door we just entered. Uh, that's Everest, like the mountain, dumbass, and I don't give a shit what you told her. Step outside with us right now or face a world of pain. Staring me down, he said nothing. Are you catching my drift? Asshole, 
He let out a long breath and without turning his head said to an assistant, All right, take over. I'll be back in five. Maybe, I said heading to the door. Stuart hadn't said a word and without any expression motioned for Bobby to follow me. Back in the conference room, Bobby sat at the head of the table, posturing like he owned the place. He may have for all I knew, but I didn't care. Stuart was on one side of the table, I the other. Doesn't even make sense while you're here wasting my time interrupting my show. We're number one in the market for entertainment, you know. <laughs> entertainment gossip bullshit. Staring ahead, he didn't move a muscle of his hulking mass. What we're doing here, Mr. Shapiro, is looking at all possible leads into the murder of Ms. Meredith Johansson. And given she's the former star of this two-bit slop shop, and perhaps more importantly for this discussion, <laughs> your ex-girlfriend, we thought we'd start with you. I don't know shit. That's possible. And evident, I smirked. What Detective Norelli means is it's possible you didn't kill Miss Johansson, but perhaps you know someone who did. Not a blink. Or know someone who could have a motive? No fucking clue. Mr. Shapiro, in our line of work, we're constantly looking for two things. You know what they are? Clues and motive. That's really pretty much it. And while we may have no clues on you yet, we certainly have motive. He slowly turned his head to me, saying nothing. I waited until enough uncomfortable silence had passed before continuing. Let's start with the fact that you and the victim were an item, on and off for nearly two years. That would be these past two years, I said, checking my notes, thanks to Carrie and Jessica, two co-workers who were friends with Meredith and happened to really despise you. That's old news, he mumbled, still looking ahead. I dumped her months ago. Besides, she got around. He looked back at me. A lot. Whore. I looked at Stuart and discreetly scratched my throat. Our sign for your turn. Stuart took a beat, pushed aside a chair that wasn't in his way, then leaned on the table, getting extremely close to Bobby's face. Bobby, there are two ways this can go. Okay? The easy way and the hard way. Now, you're making me think you're wanting it to go the hard way. However, I'm guessing you're smart enough of a man to want to pursue the easy path. Is that a fair assumption? Bobby continued staring. Stuart leaned closer. Now, I'm sure from your size, age, and strength, you could probably hurt me pretty well. That is, if you wanted or needed to. Thing is, Bobby, although I don't look like much, I'm a badass. And she, Stuart tossed his chin toward me, she's a mofo. Yeah, don't let those beauty pageant looks fool you. She could take us both out if pushed into a corner. Oddly enough, that got Bobby to shift in his seat. It was a tiny shift, but enough to let me know we were getting his attention. Now, I'm not insinuating anything illegal. Mm -mm, that wouldn't be cool. But I want you to be aware of something, because I have a pretty good hunch the three of us are going to be circling around one another for the next several days, if not weeks. Am I making sense, Bobby? Bobby finally nodded. So, how about you telling me just two little things, okay? Then we'll be on our way, all right? He didn't wait for an acknowledgement. The first question, easy, is, and it's going to sound silly, but you see, it's my job to ask you, did you kill Miss Johansson this past Sunday? Now, we're not 100% positive, but it's 
pretty likely to have happened sometime between the hours of, say, midnight and 5 a.m. So, did you? No. Okay, good enough. See how easy that was? Bobby looked at Stuart with an expression of, that's it? Nice work, Bobby. Now, this one, believe it or not, is even easier. During the time you and Miss Johansson dated, those two years together, did you ever once hit or physically attack Ms. Johansson? No. Hmm. Okay. So you never hit, slapped, pushed, or attacked her, ever. Not in any way, shape, or form. Bobby turned and stared a hole through Stuart for much too long, and then said, No, never in any form. As the old saying went, you could hear a pin drop. Okay, Bobby, that'll do it. Thank you for being so helpful. We're sorry to have interrupted your little TV show, all right? Without any fanfare, Stuart and I looked at one another, turned, and headed for the door. We were about to exit when I stopped with a gesture of, oh, I forgot something, then walked back over to him. Hey, Bobby, uh, before we head on out, can I ask you a personal question? And, And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. It's just something that's niggling at me, I said with my most charming smile. You're a really big man, and I'm guessing... You're crazy strong, right? Not sure, but he may have flexed. How much can you bench press? Just ballpark me. 460. I looked to Stuart. Holy shit, that's impressive. That's nearly a quarter ton. For the first time since we arrived, I think I saw a tiny smile. 460 is no joke. Did you hear that, Stuart? 460. No joke. You know, my partner made a comment earlier about me being a mofo. (laughs) Not really. I mean, yeah, yeah, I can probably knock someone to the ground, but certainly not you. I bet, I bet you could knock me to the ground without even breaking a sweat. It wouldn't take much, he sneered. In a flash, I wiped the aforementioned charming smile from my face and said, I bet not. That caught him off guard. Just enough. So I held his stare for the length of time I needed to decide what to do next, basically to keep him on edge. Frankly, I didn't think he was smart enough to push back. Either way, I returned my smile and reached out to shake his hand. Thanks for your time. He reluctantly obliged, trying to mask his confusion. Damn! Oh, man, that is a hell of a grip. Would not want to get on your bad side. I chuckled, smacking the side of his arm. It was as hard as I had imagined. Thanks for your time, Bobby, Stewart said with a smile. Yeah, you've been a great help. Listen, we're going to be on our way and leave you to finish your little TV show. At the door, I stopped to shake Janelle's hand. She had been silent in the corner the whole time. Thank you, Miss Everest, for your help. You two have a great day. Passing through the lobby, we smiled at people like we were just married. We were out of the building and by our car when I finally let out a long sigh. No shit, Stewart said, taking out a handkerchief to wipe his brow. Certainly a prime, especially the lie about his never hitting Meredith. Hundred percent, I said, sticking out my hand. What? Let's double check it. Oh, right. Taking a pen from his breast pocket, he tapped a button. Two tiny burps chirped before he clicked it again. Happened sometime between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m.? Did you? No. No. Okay, good enough. Tapping it again. It stopped. Okay, well, that'll come in handy later. In the meantime, let's go check on those statuettes. Copy that, mofo. Chapter 29 plastic toy. To Hollywood geeks who came from all over the country to get their fill of tchotchke bullshit, it was probably utopia. To me, it was capitalistic bullshit. 
Nonetheless, we wanted to see if we could possibly track down the producer of the small plastic Oscar statuette we found in our murder victim's poem. We arrived at Hollywood Souvenirs in the La La Land building, I'm serious, on Hollywood Boulevard at North Orange and parked around back in a no-parking zone. Walking around to the front, we were instantly bombarded by dozens of starry-eyed tourists scurrying along the boulevard like ants on hot pavement. Stuart caught me shaking my head. What's up? I just wonder how we became so addicted to so much crap. Like, I tossed my chin toward the throng of humanity. Fat tourists wearing t-shirts with obnoxious quotes, people in baggy sweats and flip-flops, no matter where they are, and all sucking on overpriced 600-calorie drinks of caffeine and sugar while snapping selfies of every move they make? Stu stared at me for a full solid beat before saying, I see you've given this some thought. Yeah, making our way into the entrance, our senses were bombarded again, this time with bright lights, loud music, and burnt popcorn. Looks like Costco and Target had sex in a Hollywood alley. Where do you come up with that stuff? And we're looking for a man named Charlie Wong. My expression. Are you kidding? While Stewart stopped a clerk to let the manager know we were here, I was distracted by a replica of Elvis's 1959 Cadillac. It's not original, you know. Really? Minutes later, we were on one floor above the madness, looking out at a near acre of Hollywood paraphernalia. Has to be a tourist wet dream, huh? I asked the manager as a way to get the conversation started. And this is just one of our stores. We have two more. One about ten blocks away and another in the valley. Good for you, I said, removing the statue from a pocket. Uh, we're here to track this down. Mr. Wong took a pair of glasses from the pocket of his neatly pressed Gaiaberis as I removed it from the evidence bag. After examining it for nearly a tenth of a second, he said, I'm sorry, I won't be much help. That is, if you think you have something unique here. Why is that? Stuart asked. Dime a dozen. You can get them anywhere. He motioned toward the front of the store. In fact, see that huge L.A. neon sign? There are literally thousands of them stacked up that entire wall. And that's just this store. And just my chain. That doesn't count the rest of the guys in this city trying to sell the same crap. And certainly doesn't count online stores who import and sell these by the millions for every Oscar party in the free world. We thanked Mr. Wong for his time, gave him our card, and left. Back at the car, Stewart sighed. Can you say dead end? Halfway back to the precinct, my cell phone rang. It was Captain Nelson. Detective Norelli. Of course it is. Who else would it be? Uh, never mind. Find a shrink yet? I put him on speakerphone so Stuart could enjoy. Uh, yes, sir. Actually, I did. Already been, and I have to say... Good. Just wondering. Listen, I've got a person from the mole, a Ms. Everest, saying you two came in there guns a-blazing. Sir, I can explain... Said you interrupted their shit show. My words, not theirs. And you were interrogating or, or uh, what, harassing one of the employees with no cause? That true? Yes. The director, Bobby Shapiro, he's our... Good. Good, good, good. Keep it up. And let me know when you're ready to put the hammer on him. Uh, copy. In fact, we're about to... Yep, good talk. More to come. Looking at my phone, he was gone. Chapter 30. Coin Flip. It was just before six when I left the station, and not long before I was deeply entrenched in Sunset Boulevard congestion. The air was thick with pollution, and my patience was thin with frustration. Sitting in bumper-to-bumper bumper was not my strong suit, so I flipped through radio stations, not settling on anyone for very long when my cell rang. Norelli. Hello, detective. I want to report a crime. 
Uh, you'll need to, I began, then looking at the number again, found it familiar. Pat, Steve Owen. Uh, sorry if that was a bad joke. Angie gave me your number. Steve, oh my God. <laughs> I thought you were, well, no worries. I'm glad you called. Look, Angie and I go way back, and when she told me about you, I thought, well, geez, what the heck, right? Right, yeah, what the heck, I, yeah. She's been a friend for a long time, and she's told me some things about you, too. Oh, shit. No, no, it, it's all good. Well, since I'm batting a thousand, let me, let me spring this idea on you. I know it's kind of last minute, but what are you doing tonight? I had to stop and think for a minute. Do I play hard to get? Hello? Oh, sorry, just navigating a hairy intersection, I lied. Actually, I'm just leaving work and was trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do for dinner, I lied again. Excellent, cool, all right. Then uh, let me take you to dinner. I'm in the valley. Where are you now? Yeah, let's see, uh, halfway between my office in Hollywood and Century City, on my way up the canyon, I'd say. Good, good, good. Uh, let me interrupt. Uh, I'm just getting on the 405. I'm going to text you a place as soon as we hang up. Follow that, and you won't be sorry. Trust me now. The place I have in mind is on the edge of Brentwood. It's got great burgers and even better cocktails. I enjoyed the smile I found spreading across my face. Well, <laughs> then I'm all in. Great, great, great. You and I should get there about the same time. I'll meet you up front. As soon as we rang off, the address appeared on my phone. I locked it into GPS and was cruising in the opposite direction in no time anxious to see what Lady Luck had in store for me. Chapter 31 Opposites Distract My father must have channeled boys early on, because even though he got his wish on the first go-round, he missed on the second. What he got was a pretty tomboy with keen male skills who developed into a beautiful woman with solid female skills. I took a spare seven minutes to run my Camaro through a slow-moving, touchless car wash, which gave me just enough time to change from company clothes to something more attractive. As the car passed through the high-speed dryer, I rolled my pits and spritzed my neck. Within minutes, I was pulling up to Father's Office on Montana, a gastropub haven of craft burgers and beers. Scanning the street for parking, I spotted a guy I had to assume was Steve. That fact was instantly confirmed with a big wave. He was hard to miss, standing in the middle of a prime parking spot and directly behind an enormous Ford F-450 Super Duty 4x4. An enormous truck for an enormous guy. Holding a cell with one hand, he waved off approaching cars with the other, obviously saving the parking spot for me, so I pulled in. As I got out, he took my hand. Hello, beautiful, he said, taking in my landscape. Hello, yourself. And she didn't tell me you were this handsome. I think he actually blushed before saying, <laughs> Not sure about all that, but I suppose I clean up okay. And she didn't tell me you were drop-dead gorgeous. I may have actually blushed when I said, Aw, oh, shucks. Extending his arm for me, he stopped traffic in both directions as we crossed the street. Hmm, a take-charge kind of guy. I like that. Whatever it takes. Talking to Steve Albert Owen was like visiting with an old friend. Our conversations covered the gamut from raising children and surviving divorce to navigating single life while maneuvering our revered list of non-negotiables. His non-negs, as we started calling them, were as follows. The person of interest must be financially independent. He wasn't hip to having to support more mouths than necessary. They must have a sense of humor. That seemed to cover a multitude of sins. They must be able to keep up with his fervor. People who leaned back and expected everything to come to them were of no interest. 
His last requirement was expected. They must be physically fit and attractive. We laughed about how I mirrored his non-negs while adding three more. They couldn't feel intimidated by the heft of my job. It was my chosen profession. They could not harm or disrespect me. Been there, done that, and would never stand for it again. My last requirement got a good laugh, as I explained that whomever managed to get my attention must be able to keep up with me, both in the bed and at the bar. I was pretty sure that gave him a big green light to push things along. It was interesting how perfectly comfortable I felt sharing my inner self with this stranger. Perhaps my current therapy session had already started to pay off. I was attracted to his looks, sure, but there was a vibe of self-confidence and knowing who he was that quickly became very attractive. The fact we were close in age was also a benefit. I'd made some silly miscalculations of late, and if I were to be honest with myself, I needed to be comfortable asking for exactly what I wanted. It seemed perfectly logical to assume such. However, given the power and position of my father, along with the domineering push of my mother, not to mention the narcissistic husband I was married to during my formative years, I'd taken a backseat to me a long time ago. That felt like it was beginning to change. And besides Dr. Dursell, I had Shay to thank for the push. And besides my job, mostly I had me to thank. The first two old-fashioned cocktails were delicious and worked quickly in helping ease the mind of self-consciousness while greasing the wheels of horniness. Mmm, the burgers were tasty and their adjoining two craft beers quickly became four. By the time our conversation got to the point of admitting I had come to a place where I was equally as interested in deep conversations as I was in deep orgasms, I knew a shift was in the making. Shortly after, he waved down the waitress and paid the check. So how about this, he said as we stepped into the cool night air. My boat is 20 minutes from here. Why don't we head there for a little nightcap? It sounded nice, and the thought of his not coming to my place was spot on. However, driving to MDR, then back home, was a buzzkill, not to mention the fear of getting a Dewey. Uh, that sounds like a plan. Just one thing. I'm driving, you can't, and I'll have you home by midnight. Checking my watch, I seriously doubted I would be returning to my car. Sure, I grinned. Or, if things go well, you can crash with me and, uh... Oh, oh, no, 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 I get it. (laughs) Maybe that's not such a good idea anyway. I mean, I'm breaking one of my own rules anyway. Which is, I never bring a girl over on the first date. (laughs) He laughed as we walked back to our cars. What? Why? Oh, uh, well, I, I like to be the one to leave, depending upon how things are going. You know, and if they're at my place and things are, you know... Not happening? We like to be the one to call the shot. Ah, fuck it, I thought, pulling his arm in the direction of his truck. Then, climbing up into the beast, I laughed, sharing a fist bump before he closed the door. We made it to his place in a bit more than 20 minutes, but they went by like five. Passing through the neighborhood gates, we snagged a parking spot near the docks and were quickly down below. The boat was simple, handsome, and appeared efficient. Steve poured two short glasses of single malt scotch older than my daughter, and we stretched out on a horseshoe-shaped couch making eyes at one another. This is more like it, huh? He asked, kicking off his shoes while removing mine. Setting aside his scotch, he began rubbing my feet. Oh. Yes, and if you keep doing that, I nodded toward his handiwork, you will have a hard time getting rid of me. Mission accomplished, he winked. Do you spend this much attention on all your girls? Grinning, he said. Actually, never. This could be a first, I thought. 
You know, I actually believe you. It wasn't long before we were half-naked and making out like high schoolers. It had been a long time since I was with a man who spent more time making sure I was being pleasured than the other way around. And it was pure pleasure. Watching him tower over me was incredibly hot. The muscles in his arms and chest were solid and impressive. His eye contact was intoxicating. And his tongue, ooh, wherever it went, knew exactly what it was doing. If there's a trophy for that, he just won. Chapter 32 Phantom Pain Watching the twinkling lights, he sat in the dark and marveled at the patterns and colors of such a corrupt landscape. The city, like so many of the images on the big screen, was fake, built upon a facade. The humanity, just players on a stage. And all those stages, silver, black, and the tiny ones, which never left their owner's palms, was an entire universe designed for one purpose, creating alternate and fictional worlds. While a small percentage were extremely wealthy and a slightly larger group were quite wealthy, the remaining majority was barely wealthy, slaving away only to make ends barely meet. Their hopes of scoring it big and marking their place in history often held only a sliver of hope. While others were self-serving, he served his fellow man. His pursuits were noble, not narcissistic. His goals beneficial, not banal. Fortunately, his lineage placed him in an elevated society, but it was his sole determination to be the best at what he did that would guarantee his indelible mark. And for now, that mark was dark. I'm an artist who creates beauty from ugliness. He could hear the siren song of lust in the distance, the tune sweet and haunting like a whisper from a lover's throat. He became aroused as he imagined smelling his lover's perfumed neck, feeling her warm skin and tasting her wet tongue and other parts. What had taken months to orchestrate was over in an instant, and with it a shivering passion, a feeling so raw and overpowering, he feared he couldn't control himself. The longing to feel that control again pulled him toward the darkness, and as much as he fought, his power to control it dissipated like the twinkling lights. I must have another. Chapter 33 Hot Damn An hour later, I was awakened by a distant, gurgling noise. Alarmed, I quickly sat up in bed, trying to place it. It was Steve. He was snoring. Holy shit, that's loud. Mm. Uh, what, what is it? You. Mm. What? You were snoring so loud, I think you woke the fish. <laughs> Funny he said, sitting on the side of the bed, rubbing his face. In my haze, I wasn't sure what to do next. Checking my watch, I saw it was way too late, and I felt caught in that space between rolling over to sleep off the booze and impending headache or get up and face the music. Sorry, I, uh, <clears throat> guess I had more than I thought. Ditto, I said. Mm. I only snore when I get hammered. Chuckling, I said, no biggie, I do the same thing. Maybe not quite as loud. Right, he smirked, checking his watch, then taking empty glasses to the sink. Guess I should be uh, getting you back. And there it was. Our sweet romance diminished to a quickie. I decided to go with it, taking the disruption as a sign. Besides, I figured if this had a chance of going anywhere, we could pick up where we left off. 
Getting dressed, I tried to retain levity. You know, for uh, such a big guy, it's a pretty small boat, isn't it? Whipping his head around, a frown cracked his brow. What? I mean, you have an enormous truck, uh, a, a, a huge, you know, I nod toward his crotch. But uh, did you say small boat? He asked, not waiting for an answer. You have any idea how much this thing cost? Seems I had accidentally hit the nerve of a prideful man who was much too drunk while I was much too self-conscious. Okay, that was, uh, look, sorry, sorry, I was kidding, I said, pushing him aside. Bending over to grab my panties, I must have pushed harder than I thought because he lost his balance and fell backwards over the edge of the couch. Instinctively, he reached out to catch himself, but inadvertently, and unfortunately, pushed me back, a move which caught me off guard, causing me to fall backwards. And spinning at the last second, my cheek met the corner of the dining room table. Fuck! I shouted, falling to the floor. Reaching for my face, I felt blood and could feel the swelling begin instantly. Holy shit! He shouted, coming to my rescue. I, I'm so sorry, Patty. Damn, I, I didn't realize that I had pushing his hand away. I barked, can you get me a wet cloth? Please, maybe some ice? Immediately, he grabbed a damp towel from the sink. That was stupid. And, oh my God, it was accidental. I, I'm, I didn't mean, I'm so sorry. Sometimes I... It was just a reaction. I'm I'm sorry. My mind raced back to my ex-husband when, on more than several occasions, Billy just had a reaction with a backhand or a shove. It always ended up doing more damage than he had accidentally meant to cause. And that was always followed up by a reason why it happened, but never an explanation why it wouldn't stop. I'm, uh, I'm sure the swelling won't be too bad, I said, taking the compress from my cheek. Right? Right? His grimace said otherwise. Well, that's not a good look. Uh, neither is that. Oh, now it's your turn to be funny. Hold tight. I'll run to a neighbor's boat. No, seriously, it's... Hold on. He's out of town. Look, he has plenty of ice. Besides, his is bigger than mine, he grinned. Before I could stop him, he was gone. Be right back. Nice. What dumb luck. Waiting for him to return, I looked around. A frosted glass cupboard with a dangling unlocked padlock caught my attention. And being a detective, I had to take a peek. Inside was a Sig Sauer P227 45 ACP. A Glock 9mm. A Smith & Wesson 357 revolver. A P238 concealed carry Sig. And an AR-15 on the top shelf. The ammunition was on the next shelf, and on the bottom, an elaborate wooden box. Curiosity being what it is, I opened the box. What the? I whispered, looking at an assortment of straight razors. Several had bone handles, one a titanium handle, and another a pearl handle. All were bright and shiny, except one, which had an extra long blade and was covered in blood, lined atop a rag. My mind raced to Meredith. I saw her neck in the pool of blood. My stomach tightened and my heart raced as my imagination kicked into hyperspeed. Uh, what are you doing? Startled, I shut the door and spun around. It was instinct, but appeared silly. His look was stern, but appeared menacing. Sorry, I, uh, was, you know, looking for another towel? I said, removing the one from my cheek, showing him the bloody remains. Here, he fumbled, taking the towel from me and rinsing it in the sink. Ringing it out, he filled it with ice from a large plastic bag, then handed it to me, following my glance toward the cupboard. They're... they're all registered. 
The awkward silence was broken by the sound of breaking glass several boats away. It startled May, but he didn't flinch. All right. Look, I was in the Marines, Camp Pendleton. Old habits die hard, shit like that, he said staring past me at nothing. And I like to keep heat nearby. Part of my prep for when the shit hits the fan. Not in again, I pushed the silence. And it will, someday. Mm-hmm. Quite a collection of razors. The awkward silence made me weary. <laughs> yeah, well, my grandfather was a barber. His will left his collection of razors to my dad, who always shaved with a straight razor until he got older. When his hands started to shake, he gave them to me. I couldn't help but look at his thick beard. Stroking it, he said, Well, yeah, right. I mean, when I shave, I use one. Or more of them. My head was pounding, my cheek was throbbing, and all I could think was, I want to go home. And the uh, blood? Huh? He asked, looking clueless. On the razor. And the towel. Oh, yeah, I was gutting fish this morning. They're a lot sharper than the fillet knife I dropped overboard. Goes through flesh like warm butter. I instantly shuddered at the thought. Okay, I've got to get home. Early day tomorrow, I said, looking for my purse. As he grabbed it from the floor in the corner, I saw a scratch on the side of his neck. One I didn't recall seeing earlier. Hey, what happened here? Did I do that? Touching, he said. <laughs> Damn cat. You don't have a cat? Uh, the Manhattan Beach property I told you about? The one Angie wants me to fix for you? Right. The last family bounced and left three cats behind. Evidently, one was hiding in a closet. So, you know, when I went to pull the doors off, it jumped off the shelf and uh, got me, I guess. I hate cats. Yeah, me too. But they're gone now. My mind flashed back to Meredith. I imagined her putting up a fight with her attacker. Come on, why not sleep it off here? I'll take you back to your car first thing, hmm? No, that's really fine, really. Hell, earlier than first thing, if you like. How about it? Nah, it's been fun, really, and interesting. But I need to be fresh. Got a stacked day tomorrow. Today, you mean? Right. Chapter 34. Swingin' Dicks. The 24-hour fitness was packed at such an early hour. Bobby Shapiro and his gym rat pal Chris Banyan spent nearly as much time gawking at girls as they did lifting the lead. With each plate added, their testosterone rose. While their IQs dipped, both men sweated and grunted as though the higher the volume, the greater their strength. After a particularly heavy lift in which Bobby clean-jerked 400 pounds, he goaded Chris to match it. Bobby had 4 inches in height and 30-plus pounds of body mass over his partner, so Chris lost the lift because of insufficient strength, but gained the attention of a woman across the room thanks to his supermodel smile. Taking a swallow of a colored concoction from a stainless steel sports bottle, Chris said, See that blonde across the room? Drinking water from a plain gallon jug, Bobby said, You mean the one in the pink with the overdone tits and the bunny tattoo on her left ankle? No, mm -mm, I didn't see her. Hot as hell. Not bad. Not, not bad? Chris snorted. Like the dead lift her over my head and drop squatter on my face. Ha 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 ha! Bobby piled more weight on the rack, looked at her, then got up in Chris's face. Never happen. Oh, yeah? Shit happens all the time. In your dreams, maybe, Bobby said, tightening the ring collars on the bar, then taking his place beneath the stack. Whatever. Come on. One more lift. A quick cool down. 
And if you're a good boy, I'll show you how it's done. Uh, you mean the deadlift or Chris nodded toward her? Both. 20 reps and 20 minutes on a bike later, the two men were wiping themselves off with small towels, still ogling a gaggle of beautiful women working out on a row of Pilates machines across the room. Okay, Mr. Universe, Chris said, punching Bobby's massive arm. Show me that Shapiro magic. That special sauce that has all the women aching for your junk. Bobby looked at him like he was an idiot. And you wonder why you can't get laid? He said, throwing his sweaty towel in Chris's face before walking across the room. Chris eagerly watched. Less than three minutes had passed when Bobby returned, smirking at Chris the entire distance of the room. And? Yeah, 392-6001. Shit! What did you say? My usual. And yes, we're grabbing drinks after work. Damn it. She's hotter than balls. <laughs> Even prettier up close. I don't get it. I'm better looking than you. But you're a geek with no game. And I'm just the opposite. Crossing the enormous parking lot, they approached their cars. Bobby tapped the remote and his windows and convertible tops silently lowered. Chris pointed his remote and his F-150 Raptor beeped. Yeah, and there's the other reason you don't get the ladies, you bitch, Bobby said, tossing his bag in the front seat. Girls dig it, bro, especially the long bed, Chris said, tossing his bag in the back. Yeah, keep telling yourself that, fuckface, Bobby polished his sunglasses before putting them on. I'm out, punished you enough for one day. Chris was pissed. First, he got beat in their lifting competition for the umpteenth time. Then he had to watch Bobby effortlessly snag another girl. And to finish it off, Bobby rubbed his face in his choice of vehicles. Knowing Bobby's weakness, he went in for the kill. Hey, hey, bonehead, want to win back that 15 grand you lost in poker last week? Bobby stopped, peered over his sunglasses. Love to, you cheating prick. I didn't cheat, you just suck at poker is all. Bobby stared. Chris waited. Yeah, what's the bet? What's your name? Chris nodded toward the club. You know, the girl, Elizabeth Conroy, some hoity-toity socialite. It was a layup, dude. Come on. Still pissed, Chris just stared. Come on. What's the bet? I gotta get to work, dude. Chris approached. Rough her up. Give me some pictures, Chris said through a cold stare. And I'll uh, give you the 15 large back. Bobby frowned. I'm fucking whack, dude. But you're insane, he snorted, starting to get in his car. Hey, 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 all it takes is some nasty photos and get as whacked as you want. He hadn't spent the money he won from Bobby and had more than enough to cover any bet they made. His position at Blackridge Capital was solid and the hedge fund business was booming. Also, besides being a rising star, he knew exactly how to make his money back, even after paying it to Bobby. Chris understood several things about his warped friend. First, he didn't like to lose at anything. Second, he was a sick fuck with a demented sense of reality. Lastly, Chris knew Bobby would do anything to win, no matter the bet or what was at stake. His greed was deep and his ego enormous. Bobby waved him off, got into his car, and started to pull away. Wait, 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 Chris shouted, running over to the window. Look, dude, dude, listen. Make it video, and I'll double the amount. Bobby looked over the top of his shades, sneered, and said, You're on. Chapter 35 three-way. Stewart and I arrived at Dr. Tercell's office within seconds of one another. 
He had labored the 405 from the valley while I had flown through back roads via the canyons. He was wearing what looked to be a new suit. It was handsome. I was wearing what looked like a swollen cheek. Holy shit, Stewart said, climbing from his car. What? Uh... Yeah, no doubt, I responded, taking my portfolio from the back seat, then setting the alarm. <laughs> Just hope the other gal looks worse. And I hope this won't get any more attention than that. Seriously, it looks Can like... Can we save that for later? Today's meeting with Tercel is pretty important, and you'll hear all about the liaison later. Promise. Copy that. By the way, nice suit. Job interview? Funny. And no, the wife went shopping. The waiting room was a nice respite from the noisy outdoors. The quiet music helped to defray stress and quiet one's mind. However, today we would be looking to push hard in order to make some progress. Sitting at stoplights on my commute, I was able to check email on my phone. I saw the captain was making noises about starting to tie up loose ends and finding solutions which hadn't been considered yet. I was sure he was getting heat from upstairs. Shit, dude, we're just getting started, I thought, trying to quiet my monkey mind. Damn, girl, this place is fancy. I smacked his thigh. The room was so quiet it seemed to echo. Ow. Oh, stop it or I'll give you something to whine about, I winked. See, you like that, Russia, don't you? As the door opened, Dr. Tercel greeted us with a warm smile and a friendly handshake. Pleasantries were shared as we settled into his office, where coffee was served by an assistant I hadn't seen before. She was young, pretty, and quickly disappeared. Detective Norelli, what on earth happened to your cheek? Uh, yep, just working out with a colleague. She kicked me in the face. Looks worse than it really is. He let it go, so I smiled and turned to Stuart. Before our meeting, we decided it would be best if he led the discussions. Given I was currently Tercel's client, it made the most sense. So, how may I be of service? Tercel said, looking from me to Stuart. Well, it's uh, pretty straightforward. We're making our way to meet with any and all people who knew Ms. Johansson, and today we'd like to discuss your relationship, both professional and personal, with Meredith. It felt different being on this side of the couch, asking the therapist about his world instead of his probing into mine. And before you begin, Stuart added, let me assure you that uh, given the recent demise of your client, you can feel perfectly comfortable divulging any and all information you have, which could potentially assist in our learning more about her. Before Tercel could start, Stuart produced a document from his sport coat pocket. And sorry to interrupt right after I begin, but I want you to feel confident we're abiding by all the rules. Stuart stood, handing Tercel the document. I see that, Tercel said, reading the paper. Not exactly a subpoena, he continued to read. And gives you full access to all my notes and her records. Stuart smiled and nodded. Another several moments passed before Tercel placed the document in his desk drawer. Looks to be in order now. Um, Detective Brown, your partner tells me your person of interest, my client, actually committed suicide. We both nod. However, my assumption, perhaps better stated, my intuition tells me you believe this is otherwise? Is that um, safe to assume? Personally, we believe it's a case of murder. However, we are required to expose every potential angle we can think of. Absolutely. There was a suicide note. Whether or not it was actually written and signed by her, it's an entirely different thing. I see. Dr. Tercel, to that point, would you classify Ms. Johansson as clinically depressed? Actually, yes. 
Quite easily, she was depressed. In fact, in just the last several months, I saw a downward spiral in her moods. She would often cancel appointments, often at the last moment. Other times, she would volley between crying for much of a session and having outbursts of anger. Stuart wrote in his pad, And don't get me wrong, he said, looking at both of us. She was a lovely gal, inside and out. Had an enormous heart. Seriously, would do anything for anyone she met. She gave over time, donated a great deal of her salary to a number of charities around the city, taking on several initiatives like the children's home, pet shelters, and unwed mothers. Helped so many people. It was beautiful to watch. After a long silence, he wiped an eye and shook his head. She was one of the good ones. How's that, Doctor? You know how this town can be vapid, empty, lonely, full of go-getters with hidden agendas, <laughs> others, albeit not so hidden. It was time I added to the mix. Dr. Drissel, on a personal level, how did you feel about Meredith? When she came recommended to me by a mutual friend, she was at a place where she needed to work through some parental issues. Also, at the time, she was having um, difficulty with a boyfriend. He was rough on her. Sadly, physically and mentally. So we agreed to meet for several sessions. He paused to open a thin letter portfolio off to the side, scanned it, then continued. Excuse me, I was just checking some notes I had made in order to be prepared for our meeting. I took the liberty to double-check dates. She came to me the first of last year. I helped her for about five months, and we made quick progress in uh, unlocking some buried issues. She was driven... And a quick study, I might add. I helped myself to water from a coffee table as Stuart flipped a page in his pad. It was um, shortly thereafter that, well, things began to shift. She told me of her feelings for me, which is something that can happen, often, uh, between practitioner and patient. I told her there was no way we could see one another, as I was her doctor. She became increasingly persistent, and to be frank, I believe she had worked out a good many of her issues. As I said, she was a, a very quick study. So when she told me she no longer wanted to see me as a patient, after a fair amount of pushback, I finally agreed. I smiled and Stuart nodded, then said, and? And I um, released her from my care. Sometime later, she sent me an email suggesting that I, um, I ask her out to uh, dinner or drinks. Does that happen often between you and your patients? Stuart asked. As I said, it can happen and has happened with a good many other practitioners. However, to be perfectly honest, that's the first time it's ever happened to me. Frankly, I was, I was surprised. And you felt you had improved enough to stop treatment? I asked, nearly holding my breath. Turning his body in my direction, he smiled. Yes, I feel her progress was substantial, and she was well on her way, not needing any more assistance, actually. And my primary focus was to help her work out some emotional scars from childhood. As an avid student, she had read a good many books, which I believe helped expedite her. Well, recovery sounds as though she had deep-seated clinical issues, when in fact she just needed some gentle tweaking to her guidance system. Interesting is all Stuart said. Yes, actually, think of it um, like a software update on to your GPS. <laughs> Makes sense, I said. 
It was obvious by everyone who met her she was used to getting, you know, what she wanted. The drive and determination of that young woman was, it was impressive. Stuart closed his pad and leaned forward. And did it take a great deal of convincing for you to transition her from patient to someone with whom you could develop a relationship? Tercel frowned, but just for a second. Mm, while I'm confident you're just doing your job asking the hard questions, let me assure you, Detective Brown, the convincing part wasn't about her mental health. It was about making sure she knew the difference between the services I gave her as a doctor and attributes I might bring to a healthy and loving relationship. And do you... Please excuse me just a moment, Detective Norelli, but I want to clarify something. We went out perhaps a dozen or so times, but I quickly, rather we, quickly realized there was simply too much difference between us. It wasn't as much about age, perhaps a decade between us, as it was about life experience. I'd heard this before. Hell, I loved it. She was obsessed with her documentary film. I mean, she had been reaching for an Oscar for more, well more than a decade. He brushed a speck of lint from his slacks. Frankly, I think uh, it was I who grew tired of competing with her work. As he looked out the window, Stuart and I exchanged looks. I glanced at my watch and Tercel stood to get a bottle of water from across the room. I'm parched. May I get either of you some water? Uh, no, thank you, Stuart replied. Actually, we're almost done here. Perhaps another question or two and we'll, we'll be on our way, Doctor. Oh, take all the time you need. I, I'm here to help, he said, returning to his chair. Uh, and for the record, Stewart began, and as I had said earlier, neither Detective Norelli nor myself believe this was a suicide. This uh, mainly because we have a problem believing a woman could cut her own throat in that fashion. Cut her wrists in a bathtub, that's a different story. But then... Who knows what goes on in the mind of someone who wants out? Well put, detective. And I see your reasoning. As you said, who knows what one will do when pushed too far, Tercel said to the floor. His somber expression felt genuine, and I had to admit, hearing the opinions of a professional certainly gave me reason to consider things differently. Looking up, he said, Not only did Meredith foster deep-seated resentment toward her father, who, unfortunately, was a drunk and abusive parent, but she repeated similar patterns by searching for those same characteristics in her relationships. How's that? I asked. Uh, what specifically? You mentioned repeating similar patterns. Now, during our investigation, we've spoken with people who have witnessed similar behaviors. In fact, someone she was close to acted much like her father. Hmm. Bobby Shapiro. Stuart and I glanced at one another before he said, We've spoken to him, and he said he never hit her. But her co-workers, they say otherwise. Bobby has issues. It's quite obvious. He's full of aggression. And Meredith, while drawn to him, actually feared him. Do you think it's possible, I hesitated, that he drove her to it? Hmm. Do I believe she was capable of taking her own life? Yes. Is it possible Bobby was responsible? Stopping, he stared at his hands like he was choosing a response. I don't know. And given I've seen him before, because of doctor and patient privacy, I really can't say. Scribbling, Stewart said, Just one more question, Dr. Tercel. You mentioned emotional scars from childhood. Besides the abusive father, what else was there? Tercel's expression said, Hmm, where do I begin? Maybe a Reader's Digest version, Doctor? Of course. <clears throat> I, um, I would say that Meredith had three major issues. An abusive father, 
low self-esteem and insecurity because of abandonment issues. We've all got our stuff, right? I said, you're right, detective, and doing the best we can. At that pause, Stuart smacked his thighs and stood. Well, this has been great. You've been a tremendous help, Dr. Giselle. Shaking hands, we headed toward the door. If there's anything else you need, please don't hesitate to reach out. Stuart and I didn't say anything until we got to the car. Across the roof, he said, Nice guy. Seems sincere. And I'm guessing as a patient, he probably makes you feel at ease, right? I looked at him and started to say something, but stopped. What? Looking back at the building, I said, You know what? He is, on all counts. And something tells me he really, I I think he really cared for her. Perhaps more than he's letting on. Probably. And you know what? I wouldn't blame him, you know, from what we've learned so far. Could you? No. Not really. Chapter 36. Unusual Suspects. Stuart dropped me off at the precinct so he could run home to check on a potential false alarm with his on-the-verge-of-delivering-wife. Within minutes, I was knee-deep in phone slips which ran the gamut from copycat killers to whack jobs who were starved for attention. I had been contemplating her calendar sprinkled with two-letter codes when McLeod pinged my phone, sharing a few extra surprises from one of Meredith's cell phones. Come to learn, our well-educated philanthropic broadcaster and filmmaker had a hefty Rolodex that revealed a voracious sexual appetite. Fifty Shades of Anastasia and Christian got nothing on Meredith. Swiping through said digital Rolodex, I came across a calendar named Proposition 69 and out of curiosity googled all of the propositions in California. Scanning the screen, the list began with Proposition 51, which was about school bonds. 52 was the Medi-Cal hospital fee program. 53 was about more bonds. 55 covered tax extensions. 56 was a cigarette tax to fund health (laughs) care. I kept skimming until I got to 67, which was about a ban on single-use plastic bags. Huh, but no Proposition 69. That's when I realized it wasn't a topic about an upcoming documentary film, but code for her sexual escapades. Proposition 69. Clever and clandestine, just like her panic room. Ah, the plot thickens, Miss Johansson, I mumbled to myself. What's that? A voice said from behind. I spun around to catch McLeod sitting at Stewart's desk performing fellatio on a sucker. What are you doing? Uh, sucking on a sucker? I see that freak. I mean... Right. I uh, wanted to hand deliver her laptop, he said, stroking the black case like it was a purring kitten. You know you're crazy, I said, spinning back around to continue cracking the codes, which were embedded into the same corner of each day of the month. Have you uh, gotten to her clientele list? Or should I say, customer list? Without turning around, I said, not yet. Copy that. Oh, and I couldn't crack the code on this laptop. What? I said much too loud, but then as I spun back around, he had the laptop facing me. It was open and revealed a picture of who I assume was Meredith, wearing a long and extremely sheer dress. Actually, it was of a half a dozen men, all of whom were wearing similar yet more masculine robes and holding a pipe in their mouths. Each wore a mask that looked like devils, complete with horns. It reminded me of the film Eyes Wide Shut with Tom Cruise and looked to be taking place at what I assumed was Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion, Next to Meredith was a very tall and striking blonde, which I felt sure was Sharon Gladstone. She was dressed in a man's suit and tie. However, the suit was see-through and very sexy. 
Nice, huh? McLeod sneered. There's hundreds, dude. Hell, thousands of photographs. And this one's tame. I thought you couldn't crack. Really? There, there isn't a computer I can't hack. Seriously? You know, if you weren't underage, I'd kiss you. What? Uh, I'm not. Norelli. False alarm. Janine's fine. Good. Yeah, except this being on the edge is driving me cray-cray. I motioned for Cloud to wait one minute. He nodded, continuing to ogle more photos. Okay, hey, listen, just buddy, take your time. I've got it all under control. I could hear his wife in the background. Hold on, baby. I'll be right there. Okay, I'm back. He continued to prattle on at length about his exit strategy for when the baby arrived. I listened half-heartedly as my eyes fell on my list of two-letter codes. E-N-G-J-T-S-S-H-D-T-B-S-B-W-N-S-G. I hadn't scoured the entire calendar, but had covered the last several months. Only a few dates were without the two-letter codes. Hey, uh, before I bounce, what are you working on? Uh, oh, um, something you'll be able to help me with. And completely enjoy, I said looking over at McLeod, who continued to eyeball soft porn on MJ's laptop. I think you'll see it's simple to follow, especially given the names I've tracked down from social media, press, and such. Hit me. I'm emailing you a calendar right now. It contains a series of initials we got from MJ's cell phones, thanks to uh, the mighty skills of our McLeod, he gestured hang loose. I'm also sending photos. You can help me put faces to names, or rather initials. Huh. Love me some puzzles. Coming your way. See ya. McLeod was happy to share the laptop, but quickly explained about having to take it with him. I objected, but when he presented me with a thumb drive of her entire photo library, I let it ride. According to him, she could not have had personal photos on her company laptop, but frankly, I didn't care. Next, McLeod and I headed out, me for a Coke and him for a choke. We had to discuss our agreement, the one where I asked him to help me with the situation my father had told me about. We were referring to it as NCA, Nikki Confiscation Agreement. While he spent way too much time explaining the complexity of maneuvering said mission, I impressed upon him the complexity of my maneuvering his future. He moved me to the front of his line. Back at our desks and over our respective addictions, I printed out Stuart's email, which had his immediate hits, and added them to the cross-reference information McLeod and I had created. With copious photos and personal emails, it didn't take long for us to finish deciphering the roster of Meredith's roosters. <laughs> it was a who's who of local celebs, from notorious bad boy actors to entrepreneurial brainiacs, all of whom were extremely wealthy and decidedly naughty. I came to call them the Notorious Eight. Chapter 37. Crystal Persuasion After some initial small talk, Angie and Dr. Tercel began with the recap of last week's appointment. She explained about how she had gone easy on the sauce. That was partially true. She shared how she was feeling stronger about her sharing her opinions on matters of the heart. That was mostly true. And she discussed how her issues of controlling her rage when people bullied her were slowly disappearing. That was completely untrue. Dr. Tercel listened intently, smiling from time to time, and as always helped her relax. Near the end of their 90-minute session, he scooted his chair forward several inches. Angie, you and I have been working together for 10 years now. Can you believe it? It's amazing, isn't it? And you have helped me so much. Thank you. But you have done all the hard work. 
and I'm so proud of you. I think that while you've made such dramatic inroads, there are still just a couple of tiny little things left to work on. And I believe in my heart of hearts you're going to ace them. Like I said, you've done all the hard work. I've laid much of the groundwork for what I believe is the next... He paused to scratch his chin, then smiled. Yes, the next chapter in this phase of our upcoming sessions. You're going to see that you will literally soar to new heights. Her smile took on a childlike quality. Knowing her love language was words of affirmations, a methodology he learned in school, his encouragement would prepare her for future receptivity of deeper training. Thank you. Patting her hand, he said, and with that said, I'd like to make a suggestion you're going to really like. Walking to his credenza, he removed a small crystal attached to a thin chain and rejoined her at the couch. That is so beautiful. What is it? It's fine crystal. It's the purest on earth, but it's more than that. It's a conduit, something for you to concentrate on while we discuss a couple of things before our session comes to a close. I'm all ears. Of course you are. And are you familiar with a practice called hypnotherapy? She frowned. I've heard of hypnosis. Hypnotherapy is basically hypnosis. Good. But easier to understand. It's completely safe and very effective in jumping over any little last hurdles that may stand in one's way. Make sense? I think so. Think of it this way. Say you're a smoker and you had tried everything. Imagine being at your wit's end. You'd be willing to try just about anything to help kick that habit for good, right? Absolutely. Oh, she said with a glimmer of recognition. You're thinking hypnotherapy may help my uh, self-confidence and anger issues, right? Exactly. And this is simply an effective tool to, let's say, steer. Yeah, steer your subconscious into working with you rather than against you. You're 100% in control. 100%. Not going to do anything crazy. Moreover, there's no secret power anyone has over you. Well, you'd never do that anyway. You're absolutely right. So let's get started, shall we? And after a few moments, trust me, you'll think you took a nice little nap. You'll feel so refreshed. She was nearly giddy with enthusiasm and instinctively took a deep breath, rolled her head around to loosen her neck, and let out a long exhale. See? You're so intuitive. I was going to ask you to do that very thing. Now, just watch this crystal as I swing it back and forth and back and forth. And just clear your mind. Remove any and all thoughts you may have. Just allow you and I to enter into this safe and sacred space with no distractions and nothing but peaceful harmony and loving good thoughts. Her shoulders relaxed as her hands fell limp in her lap. Chapter 38. Rich Boy. Our eight potential suspects, a.k.a. my notorious eight, covered the gamut of industries, and nearly all had much less than six degrees of separation from the business of Hollywood. Given we faced a full day of hitting the streets, McLeod and I split up while Stewart and I met up to visit with our third potential suspect, Elgin Nesbach, the founder of the solar car developer Spark. Their factory was located in Pomona, about 30 miles east of downtown Los Angeles. 
His company bought the Brackett Field Airport in Laverne, 10 minutes north of downtown, and transformed the old airport into a state-of-the-art facility, complete with runways that doubled as test tracks and former hangars which did double duty as assembly lines and paint base. While Pomona was much cheaper than L.A., making the location a perfect economic fit for production, Nesbach's obsession with the sparkle of wealth and prestige put his executive offices in the epicenter of downtown L.A. The Wilshire Grand Center was located in the financial district and not only the tallest building in L.A., but the 10th tallest building in the United States, the perfect beacon to show off his global-reaching empire. After getting approved by a front desk secretary, then passed to an executive secretary for a brief quiz, we were finally handled by his personal assistant and cleared for an interview. Nesbach was on the other side of a 16-foot wall of glass talking to what appeared to be a board of directors sitting at a table long enough to fit all three shifts of employees in our Hollywood precinct. He only has 15 minutes, detectives, Francine Beaumont, his PA for 10 years, said with little fanfare. Thank you, Stewart said, taking a seat in the oversized chair next to the oversized coffee table in the oversized lobby. Room's big enough to play football in, I said quietly. Miss Beaumont must have heard as she placed a tiny yet false smile on her face, pivoted like a soldier, and entered the see-through sanctuary. We both watched her perfectly shaped rear float across the room, where she proceeded to stand ramrod straight awaiting her boss's next command. Really? Stewart said, tossing his head toward an enormous oil painting of Elgin on the marble wall of the lobby. Huh? Yeah, with just a little hint of Hitler, I grinned. Twenty minutes, two bottles of imported water, and one wired magazine later, which featured, by the way, none other than our next suspect, our boy wonder arrived. And I do mean boy. Stuart and I learned that when one of the wealthiest men in the world, driving one of the most profitable companies in the world, wanted to work in one of the tallest buildings in the world, there had to be more than a tiny bit of overcompensation at work. And there was. Charming and handsome, Elgin Nesbach was shorter than I'd imagined. His eyes were closer together than photos portrayed, and he was easily the most self-aware person I had ever met. The result? A handsome narcissist with a short man complex, but with the wherewithal to buy just about anything in the world. Hello, detectives, he said, approaching with outstretched arms and a welcoming smile reminiscent of an evangelist. Sorry to keep you both waiting. Lots to do with building an empire, he smiled, shaking our hands, then waving us to follow him. We took our seats, and knowing our time was limited, got right to the point. Uh, Mr. Nesbach, uh, we're here to... Elgin! Please, call me Elgin. No need to be formal. I'm happy to help in any way that I can. I've done so much for the men and women in blue over the past several years. Uh, good enough, Elgin, I said. We are here to discuss your relationship with Meredith Johansson. Oh, lovely gal. Really bright. And you know what? An amazing talent. Well, <laughs> had. Sorry. Right, Stuart politely smiled. And what was your relationship Elgin's expression looked like he had been asked to guess the circumference of Saturn. Well, it was on and off, for one thing. And by that, I mean we were off while the show was going well. Then, when the numbers started to dip and funding for her pet project wasn't coming in as quickly as she had hoped, we were on again. Hmm, imagine that. And the second? Uh, she was a bit of a, I think you call it a depressive. I think they call it manic. Hmm, what makes you say that? 
Elgin made a roller coaster hand gesture with one hand, then whistled, making a spinning gesture to the side of his head with his other. Uh, meaning? Yeah, meaning just that. She was, you know, up and down, always emotional, always needing everything just her way, and just... He continued pinching his thumb and index finger. A wee bit crazy. And that didn't work for you? Does it work for anyone? He said, making a stupid face. Looking at Stuart's hand, he continued, Right, ah, okay, I see. Well, you're married, then you completely understand. Me? Mm-mm, no thank you. No ball and chain here, and no need to worry about losing half my money when life gets complicated. He looked at his watch, then to Miss Beaumont, who nodded. Are we about done, officers? He asked. Stuart ignored the question and looked at me. Elgin, did you ever hit Ms. Johansson? What? what? Where did that go? Absolutely not. I cared for her deeply, and as I said, she had many admirable qualities. How my mother even adored her, he said, pinching his eyes at the bridge of his nose, then mumbling, and she doesn't like anybody. So the three of you had a relationship? With slanted eyes, he said, What are you implying, detective? Just asking if you three were close, as in, were you thinking of marrying her and asking for mother's approval, or were you perhaps more like... I don't need my mother's approval, detective. I'm a very wealthy and powerful man and can do whatever with whomever and wherever I desire. To put it simply, when she learned I wouldn't be pushed around just because she wanted something from me, not my heart, might I add... Well, then I saw the writing on the wall and exited stage right, as they say in Hollywood. My partner and I shared a glance. Elgin must have taken that pause as a sign we were done and stood. Now, if you'll excuse me, Stewart pointed to the chair. Sit down, Mr. Nesbach. Please, I have just another question or two and we will be on our way. Then you can return to doing, um, you know, all your powerful things, he said, flipping a page in his notebook. Elgin snorted but obeyed. Where were you on Sunday night? Evidently it was time to play the drama card again because he stared at the ceiling like the answer was spray-painted up there. He methodically stroked his scant outline of a goatee. Let's see, Oscar night, Oscar night. Yes, of course, I was hosting an Oscar party at my Bel Air home. Without looking up from his notes, Stewart said, and I'm assuming someone can corroborate. Oh, about 35 corroborations, he said, snapping his fingers toward his assistant, and without missing a beat, she opened the cover of an iPad, swiped the screen several times, and handed it back to him. As you'll see from this invite list, it was a veritable plethora of celebrities. In the time it took Stewart and I to read the document, Ms. Beaumont had left the room, printed copies, and returned. With a smirk across his face as big as his ego, he said, Anything else, detectives? Chapter 39. Royal Bluff. Our time had run out, or better yet, the Elgin lead was cold. For now, anyway. So we made haste to the Hollywood Mole, where we would follow up with our favorite prime suspect. Evidently, we arrived at the same time their show planning session was about to begin. I spotted Julia King as she was heading our way. It took her one second to recognize me, about two seconds to make a plan of action, I'm sure, another three seconds to whisper something to her assistant, and I felt pretty sure her exit speech wouldn't take much longer than four seconds. Either way, I was prepared. That's about the funniest smile I've ever seen. 
I said from the corner of my mouth. Stuart coughed. <coughs> Bullshit. Thankfully, she wasn't close enough to catch it, and within seconds greeted me by taking an elbow and ever so slowly pushing me backwards toward the door. Oh, it is so nice to see you, but we're just now heading into a really important meeting, one I can't miss nor be late for, so if you don't mind, could you please, pretty please, either call me later, come back later, or leave whatever information you have or need from me with my assistant. Thank you ever so much. She literally said that in one breath, and although her smile was pleasant, her insincerity made me want to throw up in my mouth. Ms. King, eh, all I need is literally 15 seconds. 15, that's all. And I promise I'll be out of this building, in my car, and across town in a blink. Give me that, and I will never have you have to deal with me ever again. Really? This week, anyway. Her fake smile instantly dissolved into a sad frown. She waved the small entourage following on her heels to go into the conference room, adding, Start the opening bullshit, give me two minutes and I'll be right there, but do not start without me. Turning, she reapplied the same phony smile and waved Stuart and I over to the seating area while not bothering to sit. Okay, 15 seconds, huh? I'd like to see that. I wanted to punch the snob right off of her overdone face. Why, thank you, and this is going to be super simple, Ms. King. Hell, it'll be the quickest decision you'll make today. Doubt that. And I'll make it even easier by creating a multiple choice of only two options. The heavy sigh that blew from her nicotine-laced lungs nearly knocked me over. I tried not to wince. Let's hear it. Choice A. Allow us to view the security footage from your building to include the front, rear, and loading dock cameras covering the last 10 days. Or, choice B, we go to the judge, which just so happens to be L.A.'s most powerful judge, who would love to help us out and will return with a search warrant and shut this place down and take our sweet-ass time wasting your prime time by going through every piece of footage in this entire building. Watching blood vessels pulsate on either side of her temples made me happy. The flinching jaw sent me over the moon. Okay, fine. I'll have someone meet you here. Just give me 20 minutes and you'll... Nope, five. No telling what could accidentally happen in just 20 little minutes. I could tell she wanted to punch me in the face as much as I did her. I also knew we were talking about a very thin rope, but Stuart felt it was smart to put two alpha females against one another. As he said before we landed... If nothing else, it'll be great entertainment. Fine. Five minutes. Now, I must get to this meeting, and my assistant told me you were also looking for Mr. Shapiro. Well, as much as you'd like to harass him, today won't work. He's on location in Malibu, directing a sit-down with, well, I'm not at liberty to say, except that they're very famous couple who steal the headlines all the time. Riveting, I'm sure. She ignored me and said, You'll have to catch him another time. Oh, we'll make the time, I said to Stuart. In fact, perhaps we'll head there after we finish here. Sounds like a plan. I wasn't sure what the sudden flash of fear was about, but I had my suspicions. So, give us access to that footage, and I promise we'll be out of here in a blink. Girl Scout promise, I said, holding up three fingers. Ugh, honor, she said, shaking her head and walking away. What? She stopped, spun, and said, it's Girl Scout's honor, then turned and left. Well, that went well, huh? Stewart said quietly, still facing the conference room and giving the eye to some of the dimmer bulbs in the group. Just glad she didn't go with option B. Most judges would tell me to go fuck myself for obvious reasons. 
and your dad? What would he say? Uh, maybe not that, but close. As promised, we were escorted to a production studio library where a short dork with long hair introduced us to a cold room with many machines. He flew through a short list of do's and don'ts, then after a thorough, albeit speedy, explanation pertaining to which dials to turn and which buttons not to push, looked at our glazed eyes and said, Oh, what the hell? I'll do it. An hour later, in going back a full two weeks, we found nothing of any importance. In fact, the video we had seen earlier was nowhere to be found. Odd, huh? Ah, convenience, a word I'd use? Let's get out of here. If a certain someone has any inkling we're on to him, you might... Oh, I'd say we made that inkling pretty clear. True, but we'll catch up to him. Let's say we head out and shake our next suspects tree. Chapter 40 Air Jordan Stuart and I left the mole in time to catch up with Gray Jordan, another suspect. Gray was a life coach and motivational expert, a.k.a. performance coach. His office was in Century City, in a mid-rise tower in the shadow of the Westfield Shopping Center, at the corner of Constellation Boulevard and Avenue of the Stars, just south of Santa Monica Boulevard. The office was handsome and understated. Walls were adorned with photos of him standing with former Presidents Ronald Reagan, Clinton, and Obama. In several, he shared the stage with the likes of Tony Robbins, Sir Richard Branson, and Deepak Chopra. Other photos showed him being embraced by several single-name personalities that included Cher, Madonna, and Oprah. On another wall, bookshelves were covered with a wide array of self-help books, motivational mantras penned in glossy frames, and a variety of statues, awards, and plaques. What instantly caught my attention was the smooth, nearly seductive way he approached us. He seemed to glide as he walked, his voice as mellow as old scotch, his skin the color of caramel, and his eyes a bright green. This was also the first time I ever recalled seeing Stuart even the least bit intimidated. While they were roughly the same height, it was obvious Gray was in much better shape. He also had a polish Stuart would never have. Conversely, I would bet dollars to donuts Gray didn't have half the heart of my partner. Gray immediately put the room at ease, asking his secretary to hold all calls and inviting us into his office. She took coffee orders, then disappeared with a sincerely pleasant smile. Please come in and make yourselves comfortable, detectives. Let's sit over here and relax. Here was a cozy corner of low modern couches wrapped in soft leather and surrounded by oversized crystal lamps with black shades and soft light. The windows looked out onto Santa Monica Boulevard, nothing fancy but lots of daylight. The vibe was sophisticated, and we made small talk while his secretary served us coffee in China, then disappeared again with a smile. Now, how may I be of service? We appreciate your time and we'll keep it short. We're investigating the murder of Meredith Johansson, Stewart said with a matter-of-fact tone. Gray's forehead creased and his eyes narrowed in a display of minor shock. I, uh, I thought it was suicide. Um, that was the original report, I said. However, thanks to new evidence, it's clearly a case of homicide. Looking away, he said, Hmm, I see. Mr. Jordan, what was your relationship with Ms. Johansson? Stewart asked. Listening, I scanned the awards on the wall behind him. Uh, please call me Gray. And it was um, amicable. Close, actually. She was a wonderful young woman, and truthfully, I really cared for her. And to your point, we, we saw one another for a period of time. I watched for emotional triggers as he wiped a tear from both eyes, taking a deep breath while forcing a smile. 
How long would you say that was, I asked, and how recently? Hmm, we, uh, we dated for about three months the first time. Took a couple of months break because of our work schedules. And then dated for another three, four-month period shortly thereafter. And, and uh, that was recently. In fact, the last time I saw her, she it was about three weeks ago. We were at a benefit in West Hollywood um, to raise money for a suicide crisis center. It's a program developed by a renowned therapist here in town, Darius Trussell. I tuned out for just a split second trying to place the event do you know Dr. Tercell? Uh, we've met him several times, said Stuart. Then you know what a tremendous humanitarian he is. Uh, yes, and back to your periods of relationship, would you say Meredith could be described as more happy or sad? Gray's frown vanished into a smile. Um, while she could drop into periods of melancholy, overall she was a surprisingly bright and upbeat woman, full of hope and enthusiasm. Would you describe her as um, being surprisingly dramatic in bed? That got a surprised look from both men. Guys, we're trying to solve a murder. Sometimes you just gotta, you know, cut to the chase. And if that sounded crass, please forgive. He suppressed a chuckle and Stuart shook his head. What? Detective, I'm, while I'm a big personality, more on stage than in life, I'm private and a pretty conservative guy. The bravado of self-help guru can often be just a lot of self-promotion. That said, all my relationships, and there have been several, have uh, tabloids referring to me as a playboy. Speaking of, I'm guessing it was Hugh Hefner's mansion where you, Meredith, and a gaggle of half-naked Hollywood celebs gathered for, well, I'm not sure what it was. Hmm, yes, it was the Playboy Mansion. And it was a little crazy. You may be interested to know her Grace Kelly appearance and demeanor wasn't the same woman I knew behind closed doors. Stuart fidgeted and said, Um, Gray, we're not here to peel away your private life. Um, what I think Detective Norelli may be getting at is perhaps Meredith had a, a promiscuity shared by many. And we are assuming someone didn't like that fact. Mm-hmm. Understood. And exactly what I meant. When I learned Meredith was sharing her talents with a number of men, well, it wasn't for me. But, Gray, and forgive me for being so bold, but isn't it true you've actually been linked to a number of high-profile celebrities who are, how do I put it, promiscuous, troublemakers? Well, that's exactly what I was getting at. In fact, weren't you recently accused of physical abuse to the rap star... Uh, bullshit. The outburst caught both of us off guard. Uh, sorry. He blushed while adjusting his sleeves and smoothing his shirt. But frankly, it burns me up the way the press eats celebrities for breakfast and their lies become truth just because they report it. Stuart and I saw a glance when he said, We completely understand. And you're certainly not on trial here. We're um, simply looking into a short list of people who were involved with Meredith in many different capacities. Holding up both hands, he said, Right, right, right. I understand. And I know you aren't. I just want to be sure you know everything. And we appreciate your candor, Gray. Here's the truth. The entire reason we stopped seeing one another was because of her promiscuity. Um, look, I enjoy turning it up. But the thought of her doing the same with other men 
Frankly, I just couldn't take it any longer. He stared at his hands. I figured if I wasn't enough, it would be best to go our separate ways. So she was a bit of a freak, I said, not able to help myself. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, more than a bit. We spent a short time climbing out from his private world, discussing his days with the Lakers, and he shared some favorite quotes from some of his clients. I couldn't help but mention reading somewhere about his nickname Fifty Shades. Fortunately, that gave us all a good laugh. We wrapped our conversation by asking his whereabouts on the night of the murder. Um, I was in Manhattan at a motivational event. It was just me and a few thousand people. As we started to leave, he gave us both a copy of his recent bestseller, Start With Me, Uncovering the Real You in a False World. We made our way into the lobby where a poster caught my attention, the event he mentioned earlier. As Stewart was having him autograph his copy, I examined the poster more closely. Uh, excuse me, Gray, but didn't you say you were speaking at this event? I said, pointing to the poster. You said it was last weekend. He looked up from signing. Uh, correct. But that was a prior weekend, as in the one before this past weekend. His expression went from pleasant smile to deep frown. Oh, right. I am, I'm sorry. It was last weekend. I travel so much they all run together. Understandable, I smiled. So you were back here? Yeah, I got back here what? He stopped turning to his secretary for confirmation. With no expression, she said, You returned late Sunday night because of Monday morning we had that luncheon with the Women's Coalition, remember? He held her gaze for what seemed a bit too long, then snapped his fingers. It completely skipped my mind. We exchanged closing pleasantries and left. We were exiting the elevator and entering the garage when Stuart broke the silence. You know, I was digging the brother until you mentioned the discrepancy. Then something in the room seemed to shift, he said, unlocking the car. We got in and sat a minute. Yeah, but does he strike you as a killer? Hmm, doubtful. But then he tapped the book. Sometimes people have to uncover the real you in this big old false world. (laughs) Yeah, word. Chapter 41. Sunny Six Pack. In a city with more personal trainers per square mile than any other in the country, it was hard to find one who didn't brag about their secret sauce, their workout like no other, or their secret to unleash your inner beast. In Los Angeles, Sonny Sixpack Hoffman was the number one personal fitness trainer for the past two years and lived what he preached. At 48 and looking 38, the Hollywood legend got as much press about his constantly denied nip tucks as his near-perfect physique, which at 6 feet 195 pounds of perfectly sculpted muscle made him the envy of nearly everyone his age. His clients were actors, studio execs, doctors, surgeons, therapists, bankers, and the like who made exorbitant membership fees both per year and per session. We arrived at Sonny's home perched high above Highway 1 in Malibu to a view that was nothing less than breathtaking. Sitting squarely in one of the toniest spots in the area above Malibu Pier, the surfrider Malibu, and Casa Escobar, it was hard not to feel pangs of envy. Pulling up the long driveway, we saw the symbols of wealth. A pool, tennis court, putting green, bocce ball court, and perfectly manicured lawns complete with organic gardens. 
Perhaps most impressive was the 180-degree view of Prime Beachfront with the opposing 180-degree view of Pepperdine to the north and acres of unpopulated canyons to the south. Stepping out of the car, I tried not to drag my jaw on the perfectly granulated gravel driveway. We approached what appeared to be a studio and workout facility where a sign read, Temple of Fitness, over the entrance. We would later learn it was the trademark for all Sonny Hoffman brands, which included fitness, food, clothing, books, and TV shows. Parked in the circular driveway was a candy apple red 812 Ferrari, I couldn't help but gawk at the most high-performance Ferrari ever made. What made it so was a V12 engine which confirmed its moniker, Superfast. Behind me, I heard Stuart clear his throat and turned to see Sonny climbing out of his infinity-edge pool. A shapely assistant was in tow, but I couldn't pry my eyes from his chiseled chest and abs. I said, hello, gorgeous, just enough for Stu to hear, and we approached as he was toweling off. He reached out and shook my hand first. His crystal blue eyes sparkled as he said, You must be Detective Norelli. Which is more sparkly, his eyes or his teeth? Uh, yes it is. I mean, I am. <laughs> nice to meet you, Mr. Hoffman. Sonny, please, he smiled, holding my stare before turning to Stuart. And Detective Brown, welcome to my temple of fitness. They shook, as did my knees. We followed him toward an umbrella-covered table poolside. When the water stilled, I noticed the letters S and H painted with jewel-toned tiles on the bottom and overlapped to look like a dollar sign. He insisted on our having a drink and, turning to his assistant, ordered an organic jasmine and ginger-enhanced green tea for Stuart and his signature clean temple for me. Let's hydrate your lovely skin with vital nutrients from apple, cucumber, green pepper, orange, and aloe vera juice so you'll look and feel refreshed. Hmm, who knew my dead skin needed gooey juice to look better? While we waited for our temple restorations, we made small talk about the neighborhood. Pricey. Proximity to the ocean. Duh. And our length of the drive. Insane. Sonny, as I'm sure you've surmised by now, we're investigating the murder of Meredith Johansson, and we have... Just a tragic, he said, shaking his head in slow motion. Uh, yes, it is. We've learned from many of our interviews what a talented woman she was. Oh, one of the best. Kind, considerate, and beautiful. With so much to offer, he said, pinching the end of his perfect nose. We also found she was a very popular woman and her calendar was filled with all sorts of events, from benefits and fundraisers to news and tabloid coverage. And don't forget her documentary, one she'd been working on for I don't know how long, he said. That was a significant accomplishment. Her same calendar was filled with a vast number of names, men and women, whom we feel helped bring her vision to life, I said. Among those influential people was you. Yes, he smiled. She was well-liked by many. Stewart stopped mid-sip. Uh, more than just liked, I, I rather we, he said, tossing a chin toward me. Would say more along the lines of obsessed. I leaned forward. Would you share with us your relationship with Meredith? Placing his palms together like he was praying, he took a deep breath. Yes, I was involved with her. She was among the best souls I've had the pleasure of meeting while living here. Living here? I waved toward the property. Or do you mean here in Los Angeles? Uh, Los Angeles. I've only lived here for about five years. Yep, yep, five actually. 
I recall because it was when I met Meredith. Uh, She had just moved here from San Diego, where she hosted one of those magazine shows. We met at a function, and I, uh, I was instantly taken with her. What's the best way to say it? Her naivete and seductiveness was magic. One might think they're two different things, but truly, I believe it's the synergistic combination of two personality traits which made her so alluring. Uh, We've heard a similar sentiment from others, Stuart said. I imagine so. Uh, Sonny, where were you this past Sunday? Morning or evening, he said, turning to me with gentle eyes. Um, how about both? Let's see. Um, I had just returned from the Bay Area that morning, caught an early flight after spending all Friday in meetings, and most of the day Saturday was spent at a winery in Napa. I'm working on releasing an organic wine later this year. In fact, Meredith and I would often jump a quick flight up, spend the weekend, and return in time for her work. Uh, When was that? Stuart asked, flipping a page in his pad. Or better yet, the last time you two made that trip. He picked up his phone, swiped several times, and said, Ah, just last weekend. I, I couldn't recall if it was last or the one before. I wanted to get her opinion of a white grape we were considering. She loved white wine. Oh, I held his gaze. Yep, that was last Friday. We we, uh, we went up early, mm, spent some time in Mill Valley before heading up to Napa for the rest of the day on Saturday. We were on the second morning flight on Sunday. So as for Sunday night, Stewart said, Yeah, yeah I was actually here catching my breath and preparing for a hectic week. (laughs) You see, detectives, we have a new TV show I'm creating, as well as a new line of juices. So, so many details to take care of. Uh, And was anyone with you? He was quiet for a moment. I couldn't read his face. No, no, I, um, yeah, I was alone. Um, I needed some time to recharge, uh, gather my thoughts and such, he smiled. So you were here uh, alone, a nod. Can anyone vouch for that? I asked. For the first time since we arrived, Sonny's face changed. It wasn't a full-blown frown, but certainly less placid. Well, since my three chocolate labradoodles were at the Malibu Dog Spa and my housekeeper has Sundays off, I decided to keep it chill here at TOF. My eyebrows scrunched. Oh, sorry. Temple of Fitness. Like the sign says right there? As a couple, have you and Meredith been having any problems of late? Stuart asked while I locked on Pretty Boy's body language. Sonny shifted his body from facing me to facing Stuart and said, Hmm, interesting. Not really. I mean, nothing more than, you know, some of the everyday things couples go through. Um, like what? I asked. He shifted back to face me. You know, your schedule is crazy, but mine is crazier. Can we do it my way? At least just for now. (laughs) Or... I know you're under a great deal of pressure, but don't take that angst out on me. Especially the kind that comes from her workplace and the people, he fidgeted. Some of them can be, what's the best way to put it, particularly uh, troublesome. How's that? I smiled. I don't know exactly. There's one person, well, mm, truth be told, actually two, who seem to know exactly how to push her buttons. 
Then she would come over to this nice Zen place that I've created and just vomit, angst, anger, and anxiety. I couldn't stand it. No one said anything. It got tiresome, to be honest. Breathing heavier, he added, and personally, I couldn't stand it. Her work was, you know, it was okay, at best. But she could have done so much better, he shook his head. As in higher quality? Stuart and I held our collective breaths. Detectives, I told her a year ago to dump that station and that loser of a boyfriend. What's his name? Uh, Shapiro. What an idiot. I couldn't help but grin. He caught it. (laughs) You've met him? Oh, we've met, yeah. And you're right. Piece of work. Stuart closed his notepad, drained the last of his drink, then wiped his mouth. Well, Mr. Hoffman, we certainly appreciate your time. He stood. Think nothing of it. Stuart remained seated and said, Just one more question before we go. Sonny sat back down. Sure. What is it? We, um, we have to ask everyone associated with Meredith the same thing. So, it's just part of the deal. So, I'll just ask you. Did you have anything to do with Meredith's recent demise? Sonny's face went dark. Are you asking me, Detective Brown, if I murdered Meredith? Is that what you and Detective Norelli, he said, turning his attention to me, is that what you're asking me? Someone who has done so much for people, for our community? Someone of my integrity who wants nothing more than to see people thrive and to live healthy, prosperous lives? Tell me, is that what you're asking of me? Stewart's expression said, sorry. I smiled. Please. <sighs> no. For the record, no, I did not. I cared too deeply for her to ever bring her any harm, he said, making the sign of the cross. May she rest in peace. Walking to the car, I cut a sideways glance at Stuart and said, Hmm, I didn't see him being a Catholic. Yeah. More of a Southern Baptist vibe, he grinned. Heading south on Highway 1, I rolled down my window and let the ocean breeze fill my lungs and clear my head. Since we only had his word for it, we weren't eager to let him off the hook. However, given his reputation as a stand-up guy, a professional in the community who actually gave a great deal to people, we would have to find more evidence. At the moment, he didn't feel right for it, but those are the ones I tend to keep an eye on. I thought it was about time to check in with McLeod as I had a hunch he could tap into Sonny's security system. Did you see all the cameras around that spread? Well, I counted ten just along the part we had access to. Really? I had nine. Right. But did you see the tiny one and the umbrella just above our heads? Your eye for detail trumps mine, partner, I'll tell you. (laughs) Nah, yours is tight. That is when you're not undressing our suspects. I was not. Yeah, Keep telling yourself that. No wonder you weren't in a hurry to leave. I rang McLeod asking him to check out Sonny's surveillance system. He asked if he needed to go there or do it from the office. I had come to learn McLeod spends about 85% of his life inside, so I thought it could be a treat for him to go to the garage, book an undercover van, and run out to Malibu to sniff around. He was on the road before I could say, Whatever you do, don't snoop anywhere except to learn exactly what I instructed, and if I catch a whiff of you're doing something stupid, our entire relationship in your future is sunk. 
Less than 90 minutes later, he rang to tell me he had skimmed through the last several days of video and didn't find much. However, he had learned a few interesting facts about our Sonny. First, he loves to skinny dip late at night. Second, he enjoys a hearty session of masturbating in his four-person jacuzzi just before bed. And third, it appears Mr. Healthy Juice also enjoys a less-than-healthy scotch just before bedtime. While I was vicariously enjoying the behind-the-scenes secrets, I had other demands, so I asked him to cut to the chase and tell me what he was doing on the night in question. It's crazy, but he was asleep in bed by 10 and literally didn't move until 6 the next morning. Okay, then here's what I... No, Norelli. I mean, I ran the video at hyperspeed and he did not move a single muscle. It was weird. Note to self, keep Sonny close. Chapter 42 Family Drama Back at my desk, I sipped a coffee while flipping through Stewart's notes, cross-referencing them with databases on my computer. Since the only person at the mole who would give us the time of day was Ms. Everest, I'd been on the phone working my sweet side with a vengeance, trying to see what else I could glean about our prime suspect. Bobby Eugene Shapiro was not the nice Jewish young man his newer parents had hoped he would become. According to a sheet, which was literally longer than my arm, he had seen nothing but trouble in his relatively young life. It made me wonder what level of talent it took to get on the inside track. I'd always heard the real players in Hollywood like to work with people who were nice, kind, and on time. I doubted he fit any of those bills. According to HR, he had been written up a handful of times since coming to work at the Mole nearly four years ago. All reports were made by women. All counts were based on either sexual innuendo, sexual language, or double entendre conversations. Supposedly nothing physical, but certainly harassing. As I read the notes from two different HR reps, I noticed three of the four women, after a follow-up was done, declined to make any comments. Checking records, I learned he and another young man, Stanley Jensen, were accused of raping a girl on campus during their hazing week. Charges were dropped when the girl came forward and went on record saying she consented to having sex with Bobby. Rumors were prominent that Shapiro was labeled a wild man, while Jansen was known as an angry racist. Not only did he lose his scholarship, but the National Football League teams all rescinded their tentative offers. Legal sources close to Shapiro said the initial report stated Ann Latimer was violently and repeatedly raped by the two men and potentially two more. However, those additional names never made it into the records. One person with whom I made a connection told me the other two men went on to enjoy full-ride scholarships, eventually entering the world of professional sports. Side note, one plays football for Miami while the other plays baseball for St. Louis. The most intriguing find was how Bobby was adopted his junior year of high school. It was the adoptive father who was the good guy, and the one who had greased paths for the man I see as a genuine Neanderthal. Bobby's birth father, on the other hand, ruled a troubled and eventually broken home. What you working on, Pat? Stuart asked, startling me as he entered. Shapiro, sitting on the corner of my desk, he shoved a buttermilk old-fashioned twist into his mouth. I spun a folder in his direction. Looks like our boy's a bad one. At least, I understand his temper better now. He began licking his fingers. Yeah, yeah, but doesn't give him the right to hit a woman. Uh, never lick, ever lick. I added a printout copy of what I'd discovered and handed it to him, along with a napkin. Flipping through it, he whistled before slurping the end of his coffee. Hmm, our boy's got anger issues. Uh, no doubt. Bet your Dr. Tercel could help him get a handle. Hey, that's not a bad idea. 
The word weapons pinged the back of my mind, so I pulled up Google for a quick search. The browser picked up my location and instantly provided stores and clubs. One in particular caught my eye. It was a hunting store and club called The Straight and Arrow. Reading further, I learned groups of people on both the west side and the valley up near Northridge and Valencia met to share their passion for compound bows and hunting knives. According to the article, this was a place for people who enjoyed the silent kill. Scanning images on the front page of their website was a large photograph and long article on one of their elite members, Bobby Shapiro, who had been shooting compound bows for nearly a dozen years. In fact, looked like he was an expert marksman with a long list of achievements. Reading on, I saw he was also an avid collector of hunting knives and straight razors. Stuart, look at this, I said, turning the monitor. Okay, bows, arrows, knives. Oh. Yep, that's our boy. Wild, huh? Look at that collection of blades. Yeah, regular Daniel Boone, I said, standing to look over his shoulder. Then my stomach tightened. Taking over the mouse, I scrolled back up the page to find a photo of three men standing next to one another. According to the caption below, they were sharing bragging rights. The headline read, Local marksmen share their impressive collection of rare and antique blades. Look, that's the guy I went out with. The one who busted my face. You're kidding me. Steve Owen. Chapter 43. Suck it. The precinct office buzzed with ringing phones as voices murmured in nearby cubicles. People came in and out of the area, their shoes echoing off the marble floors in the hallway. Stuart and I stared at one another. A second blade collector? Looks like it. And even though he busted me up on our first date, I was starting to like him. Stewart stood and stretched, rolling his neck. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I think we have enough to bring him in. Who? Snapping his head in my direction, he said, What do you mean, who? Who are you talking about? Steve? <laughs> no, Detective. Bobby. Oh, of course. His expression said, You're insane. Just a shame I'm going to have to bounce on Steve, though, huh? Are you losing your mind? Probably. Stuart walked to a cubicle two desks over and took a lollipop from the corner of Josh Preston's desk, the owner of the candy. A note attached to the box read, suck it for a buck. Taking the sucker and unwrapping it, Stuart tossed a single and Preston tossed him a nod, not looking up from his computer screen. Can you keep it, just keep it in your pants, you know, long enough for us to get things in order? We both laughed. You know he'll be coming back for more. Yeah, but maybe I've had it with a crazy stew. You know, time to find a nice guy and settle down. Shaking my head, I punched him in the arm as I passed him. Yeah, we'll finish this in a minute. I gotta go pee, I said, scooting down the hall and taking the elevator. Minutes later, hey, what's up, McLeod? I asked, entering his overstacked office. He gave new meaning to the word hoarder. Sup, he said, glancing in my direction, but not changing his expression. Geez, you ever throw anything out? I asked, looking at racks of research and piles of files. Do I come into your home and tell you how to arrange your life? I plopped beside him like his new best friend. I just wanted to see if you've discovered anything that could uh, shed new light on our story. <sighs> he pushed his glasses onto the top of his head and spun his swiveled chair in my direction. Okay, let's see. As I recall, I cracked her cloud, giving you full access to her Mac account. Then I... Unlocked her phone, giving you full access to all her calendars and photos, which I seem to recall you're saying was going to be extremely helpful. 
Oh, absolutely. A thing is, you told me you were going to actually give me the phone after you ran through the, uh, as you said, proper channels. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, okay, guess I forgot. Or maybe you were dragging your feet, taking time to maybe duplicate a few things, maybe sell some of the photos to, I don't know, outside sources, something like that. As hard as he tried, there was no hiding the look of fear that blanketed his face. He spun around, typed a few keys, then snapping his finger, said, Be right back. Hearing him sprint down the hall, I took the opportunity to snoop. Why not? Moving his mouse, the monitor awoke. However, his screensaver came on, asking for a password. While I was at it, I took out my smartphone and snapped a photo of an open file on his desk. It had some names and addresses I recognized. Before I had the chance to look at anything else, I heard him running down the hall with just enough time to have spent away. I pretended to be reading. <sighs> okay, first of all, I did uh, borrow some of the photos, <clears throat> but I didn't think all that much about it being such a big deal. But it's part of the investigation, I said, tapping an app on my phone. Yeah, I know. Um, look, it's just that I don't get paid that much. And, uh, well, some of the photos could, especially given her recent current situation, literally pay off my school debt. I understood where he was coming from and was sure if I were in his place, I may do similarly. But I wasn't and wouldn't. Probably. Please don't say anything. Like, I'll do anything to keep this job. That's when an idea came to me. Detective? I looked away to let him sweat and added head shaking for good measure. You know, do you think we could, you know, keep this between you and me, please? I don't know, man. This is some serious shit. You know what would happen if yes, that... I know, I know. I, of course, of course. Um, but look, I'd be bounced in an instant and never be able to work with the LAPD again. I mean, maybe not any law enforcement agency ever. Oh, he was sweating now, literally. A thin film formed on his forehead as he repeatedly licked his lips. He was a good kid and had great promise, was smart as hell, and was driven like a machine. I felt for him. Plus, I knew we could work together. McLeod, do you realize this is one of the biggest cases to come along in a long time? I mean, it's it's a career changer. And by the way, a career changer for moi. I can't take any chances of something going wonky. You feel Detective me? Detective Norelli, I, it won't. I promise. Seriously, we can work something out. Look, look, you know I do good work. I've always played ball with you and Detective Brown. And I love, and I mean I love my job. There is no effing way I could afford to get fired. All right. I have an idea, but it's going to take... I crossed the room, closed the door, then stepped closer. It's going to take a ton of trust on both of our parts. By the time I returned to the office, Stuart had fully examined the Straight and Arrow website, contacted the owner, learned of the manufacture of razors matching the one found in Meredith's hand, and made an appointment for us to meet with the owner. His nose was buried in his notepad when I returned. Uh, what tells me you were doing more than just peeing? He asked, not looking up. I know we're partners, but isn't that just a bit too personal? I asked, reapplying lip gloss. What were you doing, bugging McLeod? Well, how'd you find anything new? Just photos and schedules and lots of juicy details, I said, taking a phone from my bag to wave it in his face. Snatching it away, he said, hey, when were you going to share? I am, right now. He swiped the screen through dozens of photos, mumbling, mm, kid's a genius. Scanning photos, he added, and she truly beautiful. Not as beautiful as Janine, I grinned. Chapter 44 
Straight Arrow. The Straight and Arrow was an enormous sporting goods store in the valley at the corner of Ventura and Silpavita Boulevards, in the shadow of Sherman Oaks Galleria, and directly beneath the concrete spaghetti of the 405 and 101. The sign over the entrance read, Largest store on the West Coast for bows, blades, arrows, and ammunition. The size and sound of the place was overwhelming. Looks like Cabela's had sex with Bass Pro Shops. I didn't know you frequented those places, Stewart said with a lopsided grin. Uh, it's called having a father and a brother who loved hunting anything that moved. Who are we seeing anyway? He checked his trusty pad. Um, Jonathan Hubble. Copy that. A buttoned-up kid with an enormous smile approached us with a badge that read, Walter from Sioux City, Iowa. He looked more like one of those Jehovah's Witnesses who trolled neighborhoods asking people if they knew where they went when they died. To the coroners, I used to say. Hi, detectives. I'm Walter from Sioux City. I grinned. We see that. I'm Detective Brown. This is my partner, Detective Norelli. You and I spoke earlier today? Yes, of course. Mr. Hubble is expecting you. Right this way, please. Three minutes, but feeling like three miles later, we entered the general manager's office. It was likewise unusually large and decorated with all brands of non-ballistic weaponry. A wall of television screens monitored the showroom floor, loading docks, employees' cafeteria, all entrances, front, back, and sideways, as well as the rooftop. Welcome, detectives. Welcome. What can I do you for? He asked, waving us to have a seat in the two oversized Adirondack chairs that flanked his desk, a fallen California redwood the size of a picnic table. Is that real? I pointed to a compound bow hanging on the wall behind his desk. Oh, uh, what's, what's that, little lady? Uh... Hubble said, spinning around to look. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they call promotional swag. Eye candy, if you will. Uh, the one time it was fired, we launched an arrow about the size of a javelin. It was a, um, a demonstration for one of our retailers in Northridge. Damn thing flew a quarter mile before landing in a field. <laughs> she took two men to remove it from the dirt. Mounted it up there the very next day. Been there ever since. About the size of a Mini Cooper. I chuckled. Uh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. It's a big one, all right. Stuart got us started. Uh, Mr. Hubble, we're kind of short on time, and we're wondering... Hell's bells, detectives. Y'all call me Jonathan. And I understand. Listen, people say I talk too much. I'll shut up and let you get to asking your questions. Just know that I'm happy to help you in any way I can. So tell me now, what's on your mind? Go right ahead. Got all the time in the world for the men and women in blue. Let's hear it. Come on now. We're looking at a couple of things. Stuart began taking out his phone and pulling up some photos. Do you know this man? Uh, we pulled it from your website. Hubble looked intently, pursed his lips, and said, ah, I see that. Yes, sir. That's Mr. Bobby Shapiro. Hmm. Let's see. He's accepting an award right here in our store. Oh, he's, he's, he's one of our biggest clients. Bought a lot of toys from us. Big, big spender. Great shooter. What a hell of a collection. I asked, would you say he's a responsible collector and marksman? Mm, hot damn absolutely. I mean, a fine example of our best customer and a good man of the community, too, you know. Uh, he's a director <clears throat> at that there uh, TV show, um, Hollywood Mole. Wife and I love that program. Mm, never miss it. I'll tell you what. Mr. Hubble, see the fellow next to him. Do you know him, too? Hell yeah. He's some uh, real estate construction developer or such. Hell of a nice guy, but can be kind of short. With people, that is, not stature. 
Because as you can see, he's a big fella. <laughs> Short like how? He squinted at me. Hmm. Edgy? Uh, anxious? Not a lot of patience? Almost like he's always in a rush to be somewhere. Understood. But he's also a collector, you said, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, a good many clients do a heap of collecting. It's a, maybe it's a guy thing, ma'am, but once you find something you like, you just keep collecting them. You know, one may be pretty, uh, but there's always another one that comes along that may be even prettier, if you know what I'm saying. And, well, you got to have that one, too. <laughs> Stuart shared a laugh with the misogynistic asshole, but I only pretended to join in. While I heard what he was saying, I was having a hard time believing the Steve I was getting to know could be a killer. Yeah, he was gruff sometimes, but I just took it as his personality. I mean, his upbringing, maybe his time in the force. Either way, the verdict was still out for everyone. It wasn't that I was sensitive to innuendo or to guys who thought they were clever hiding messages in conversations. But more than some men I have known were testosterone-stacked Neanderthals whose primary focus was beer, wings, boobs, and sports, not necessarily in that order. Hubble may have suddenly disliked my vibe because his body language shifted and he began wrapping things up. Or distracting us from something else. Hmm. Well, I should get back to work, <coughs> folks, he said, slapping his thighs and standing. Stewart stood and said, the reason we came out here was to look into the death of a young woman who worked at the station you mentioned earlier. We're following any leads whatsoever. Holy moly. Yeah, you mean uh, Miss Johansson. Yeah. Wife and I heard about that. Mm, man, she was some kind of beautiful... What a sad state of affairs taking her own life like that. Does not make any sense. Actually, sir, we're pretty sure she was murdered. That came out colder than I meant. Hubble and Stewart looked at me. As Stewart said, it's not completely official, but we are following all leads. And as Detective Norelli just said, it's likely a murder case. So if there's anything you can think of, he handed him a card. Please don't hesitate to call. One last thing, Mr. Hubble, I have a father and brother who collected guns their whole life, and I suppose they both have a knife or two. But are knives, and in this case, razors, something men collect? Oh, hell yes, Mr. Norelli. If it's a weapon and it's valuable, it's a, it's, a, it's a collectible. And while some gents prefer guns or bows and arrows, others like the steel. I nodded, stared, and said nothing else. Hubble stood there with a dumb look and a slack jaw, mindlessly tapping Stu's card before he pushed a button on his desk. Okay, good enough. All right, I'll be in touch as needed. Thanks for stopping in, and uh, we'll see y'all now. Walter from Iowa quietly arrived and waved for us to follow. Thanks for your time, I said, extending my hand. Hubble looked at my hand, up my entire torso to my face, then slowly shook my hand. Silent, he sat and buried his face in his work. Just as I was about to leave, my eyes fell on a picture frame of his desk. It was a photo of Steve standing with a man I didn't recognize. And one I did. Dr. Tercell. My stomach dropped. At the moment I was about to speak, Hubble looked up and frowned. Uh, if there's nothing else, Detective, I really must get back to it. I pretended to smile, turned, and left. Chapter 45 Secret Stash between the new construction of Studio A and several back-to-back -back meetings with investors, Bobby Shapiro gave his entire crew the rest of the day off. When the team left Anosh at Chin Chin and Sunset Plaza, 
He left to run several errands before noshing on something entirely different later in the day. He pulled into a bank lot and parked under the shade of a large eucalyptus tree, shutting off the engine to take a minute to catch his breath. The morning had begun with hot sex with a soft porn actress named Tandy. They had met at a bar the night before where she told him she wanted to get into real television. She was stunningly beautiful but profoundly stupid. So although a great workout in the sack, she would never win the director's assistant position, no matter how hard she blew. Those activities were followed by a workout with his pal Chris Banyan, who left him with an enticing challenge to win some large money. Bobby liked challenges because he liked to win, but he enjoyed beating people even more, especially an egomaniacal prick like Chris. After the workout, he showed up early at the mole, tasked with directing an interview with a startup genius who was opening a film studio in the Valley, North Hollywood, not Silicon. The punk had entirely too much money and wanted to show off by building a shrine-slash-studio to himself. Next, Bobby sat in on a meeting with a team working on a retrospective on Meredith's life that would cover her growing up in a small town outside Madison, Wisconsin, before following her news career and dream of becoming the next Sofia Coppola. The project would culminate with the impact of her philanthropical achievements. What wouldn't be revealed was her dark sexual persona, something very few knew about. Inside the massive bank, he was greeted by a pleasant yet nondescript banker who led him to a private room where he was left to peruse the contents of an oversized safety deposit box. They were duplicated on an enclosed thumb drive, which was as good as gold as it could upend several low-life socialites with dark proclivities. He enjoyed having tangible reminders of his dark escapades, and three Blu-ray DVDs held a few hours of primetime video where he was both director and participant. As much of a pervert as his pal Chris Banyan was, Bobby knew one video which would return his money from their earlier wager. Additional information would also net a handsome sum from the right buyer, a perfect recipe for future blackmail. Scenes of Meredith's naked body brought a rush of memories of their first meeting. He was a new director at the Mole, she a new on-air talent. Bobby saw in her what most people would quickly learn. Her street smart superseded her beauty pageant looks. The fact her body was made for sinful deeds was their little secret. He flipped through another stack of equally naughty photos. The event was a trade for services at a late-night gathering of rich, spoiled playboys. In fact, the Playboy Mansion had been leased for a three-day bender of booze, babes, coke, and cocks. All who attended paid 50 grand for the invite-only, free-for-all event in the true Hollywood tradition. The last item in the safety deposit box held a tiny professional GoPro camera, a small tool that would yield large results. He was about to wrap up when he saw a photo with three recognizable faces, all of whom were handsome and rich. That's when he got an adrenaline-thumping idea. The first was Patrick McAvoy, a.k.a. Pretty Boy Pat, a well-known celebrity chef and newest taste of the town since his TV show Hot Chef had become a smash hit. Bobby directed the entire season and developed a friendship with Patrick because of their shared passions for hunting and women. The show and McAvoy had been financially supported by investors who also owned a lion's share of the Hollywood Mole. The second candidate was Beverly Hills therapist Darius Tercel, a savior to L.A.'s self-absorbed, star-studded community. Those in the know were familiar with his helping up-and-coming actors who had reached their down-and-out status. When he got them back on their feet, or in Hollywood terms, greenlit, it made him a hero of studio execs. The last guy wasn't a Hollywood star, but a notorious ladies' man. 
As a former Marine turned real estate and land developer, he bought and built or fixed and flipped many of the mansions on the Hollywood elite. Steve Owen held a top position in one of many who's who lists. He and Bobby were pals, having met at a competition event at Straight and Narrow. It was a charity event held each year to raise money for any number of causes. Owen had the looks of a killer and the reputation of a ball breaker. Bobby liked him. And if the police got closer to linking Bobby to Meredith's murder, any one of these three would become the perfect target for his Plan B. Chapter 46 Speed Racer Zero to 90 in less than five seconds is what Bobby's Porsche 911 clocked as the light turned green at the corner of Fairfax and Santa Monica Boulevards. Anyone looking sideways would only see a yellow blur. I'll be in Century City before you can say blackmail. Bobby called Banyan to tell him of a more devilish idea. Chris was all ears. Bobby said he wanted to pay double or nothing saying his video would top anything Chris had seen, but it would cost him big. Bobby could practically feel his friend's hot breath panto over the phone. Before ringing off, he told Banyan to expect the hard-on of his life inside the next 24. The next call was to his assistant, asking her to locate contact info for his three blackmail candidates and forward to his private Dropbox, not his phone. She agreed, knowing he had the same kind of blackmail material on her and could end her career if he wanted. He then called his attorney, Andrew Jacobitz, in Century City. He told AJ they needed to talk. Hanging up, Bobby got a call from a friend inside the mole saying the cops were looking for him again. He dismissed the jolt of nerves, feeling confident in his new plan. However, as a backup, he called Sharon Gladstone, asking if she had been approached by the cops. She calmly affirmed, but revealed nothing. Hey, let's get together later, he pushed. I can't. I've got a new girlfriend. Already? She's my backup plan. You know how flaky MJ could get. Bored of the small talk, he dropped a live wire. I think the cops want me as their prime suspect. Silence. Hello? Well, you know I've got your back, Bobby. Hell, I'm as guilty as you are. So before you do anything stupid, please tell me first. I'm thinking about talking to them. What the fuck? Listen to the method of my madness. Bobby, seriously, with your temper, maybe it's not such a good idea. He wanted to believe her motives were pure, but couldn't. As much as he enjoyed using her, just as she used him, she was BSC a reference he and Banyan used to mean batshit crazy. You still there? Yeah, he said, pulling into the garage of the Century City parking deck. I might have to go to the cops, he started. The evidence is... Fuck, Bobby! Please tell me you're not! Sharon, settle the hell down. You'll be fine, trust me. I've got to bounce. As the valet handed him a ticket, a beautiful woman in a tight skirt exited a talent agency. Bobby, come on, let's go play! I'll make it worth your while. He felt his pants stretch at the thought of taking Sharon apart. Her voice had an edge. Been too long since we got super crazy. She was hard to resist, but so was the skirt in front of him. Okay, I'll text you the place. Hanging up, he stepped into the elevator, inhaling the woman's intoxicating perfume. She flipped her long auburn hair behind her neck. He examined the reflection of her full cleavage in the mirrored doors. She pulled at her skirt, which caused him to look down at the shape of her perfect ass. He texted to Sharon, the standard at seven. The woman dabbed at the edges of her full lips, then turned just enough for their eyes to meet. He smiled. She turned. 
Exiting, he typed, Make it eight. Your place. Be ready for pain. Chapter 47 Hornet Nest Stuart and I were back at the office. I sat quietly at my desk, my mind a whirling dervish, between Meredith's murderer and Fat Frankie's threat to my father and our family. I was picturing Fat Frankie lining us up on the living room couch and shooting us one by one, execution style. Next, I imagined him following each of us through our days only to sneak up and snuff us out where we stood. Maybe even worse was the image of Frankie and friends sneaking into our homes and whacking us in our sleep. Bunners can't take this shit. I texted McLeod. Ready for that favor? In less than 30 seconds, a text appeared. Who is this? Erase me, fucker. Instantly, my office phone rang. It was from inside the building. What the fuck are you doing, detective? I'm trying to see if you're... I know what you're trying to do, just not on my cell phone. Meet me downstairs in five, between the food truck and the smoking section. Right then, Stuart came around the corner. Yeah, okay, just wanted to see if you're going to meet me for drinks later. Sure, okay, talk to you later. I said to nobody, hanging up and stretching my back. Steve back in the picture. Nah, Angie, more ideas about places to live. Heading for the door, I said, I gotta pee. We've been together long enough to know when either one of us was bluffing. Maybe I was just getting paranoid. Either way, I walked toward the ladies' room only to cut back down the hall to take the stairs. Once outside, I spotted McLeod. He'd already gotten served and was leaning against a picnic table next to the smokers, stuffing a burrito the size of a small handbag into his mouth. Smoke while you eat? I smirked. McLeod looked over to see two smokers chuffing away as hard as they could, shrugged his shoulders, and kept cramming. In between bites, he managed to say, Well, hey, not much different than eating at a cookout. The burrito was gone before I could decide whether I wanted a Diet Coke or the real thing. Hungry? I asked. <clears throat> not now. Sorry to bust your nuts earlier, but come on, that was a bogus move. Just caught off guard, I guess. I get it. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, elephant in the room. See what I did there? The fat guy and I. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. And while you're being Jimmy Fallon, why don't you share how you're going to do the... Yeah, about that. McLeod, don't do or say anything that's going to make me want to punch your skinny face. Jeez, wound tight, are you? Uh, if you were in my place, you would be too. The crowd was growing, so while I got my soft drink, he moved to the other end of the parking lot and lit up. Approaching, I said, Who still smokes? I do. No wonder you're a buck sixty-five. Listen, we can't waste any more time on this. The hammer's coming, and I do not want it falling on my fa my family's head. It's okay. I know it's your dad you're protecting. Why do you say that? Really? Besides the fact that your father was the only robe who presided over the most notorious mob story in the past, what, 40 years? And the only high-level judge I know who's on the way out while you're on the way up? I looked away, trying to ignore his smugness. Look, you're in a tricky spot, detective. I get it. And he's in a sticky one. It took me all of, what, 20 minutes? He lit a second cigarette with the first to figure I was the best guy to blackmail. Shaking my head in disbelief, I barked. Wait a second. You have no... It's I cool, Pat. It's cool. I know the deal. And the shit I'm standing in, I get it. Plus, without me, you and your family won't be celebrating holidays. This kid was cocky, but smart. And the reason I cut him slack. Yeah, and it's Detective Norelli, punk. I wanted to pat his chest for a wire. Copy that. 
And speaking of evidence, he said, reaching into his pocket to produce a thumb drive, call this a little down payment. I stared. Look, you know I'm in this for the long haul, so I help you, you help me. This, he said, sliding the drive into my jacket pocket, this little something shows you I'm a team player. And all that happy horseshit, Norelle. Okay, all right. Rolling his eyes, he smirked. I know exactly how I'm going to get what you need. This will help you get closer to solving your case. After all, sooner you solve this, sooner we can focus on other shit, right? Something about Meredith? A nod. And for the record, I have perfect access to the, he looked around before lowering his voice, party room. I'm head of the guest list with keys to the exhibit hall, which will be a grand event for your upcoming celebration. <laughs> I couldn't help but smile. The balls on this kid. We people watched for 30 seconds before I had run out of time and patience. Okay, look, I gotta go. Stuart will be wondering why I am. He nodded to the taco truck. Buy him a taco. Hmm, smart, I smiled, heading that way. True, he said, following me and leaving a trail of smoke in his wake. As I abruptly stopped, he nearly bumped into me. And put that damn thing out, then quit. You've got a career in front of you, kid, and I'd hate to see you drown in your own lung butter. Shit, dude, that's graphic. Yeah, so is death. Grinding it out, he eyeballed me. Yes, mother. Chapter 48. Attorney Privilege. Shapiro and AJ sat facing one another, but both appearing to be focused on the impressive Century City view. The attorney's suite of offices was one floor below the monolithic talent agency whose name adorned the perimeter of the penthouse. The nearly two-story letters could be seen from most of the west side. Jacobitz and Partners was the second largest legal group in SoCal, so when they needed an address that matched their stature, ICM, the former MGM Tower, was a solid choice. Hell of a view, huh, Bobby? Yeah, peachy. Now, can we get back to the subject, or are you humping me so you can add another wing to your Malibu spread? Andrew let his minute smile serve more as an acknowledgement than an affirmation. Known as one of the most powerful litigators in Los Angeles, and as an unconscionable ball-breaker, he hated the thought of some money-saturated, underrated director like Shapiro walk all over him. He had to keep his cool, as he didn't get to where he was by being an irrational hothead. In fact, he enjoyed how his client paid him $1,000 an hour for his precious time and profound talents. Let's eat a little humble pie as long as it's covered in cash, he mused before saying, Sure, back to business. Good. What they've got is circumstantial and only potentially admissible. But what you've got, my friend, yeah, is enough to redirect attention from me to another party. <laughs> they stared in silence before Andrew said, Yeah, you have the creativity, and I, the credibility. Bobby let his shoulders drop. Thought so. Andrew forced a smile. Understandable, Andrew said, walking to his desk. I say you move forward with the plan just as you showed me. Swiping his iPad screen, he said, and I'll make all the necessary arrangements. You made a smart move getting ahead of this thing. Yeah, not my first rodeo. Leaving his attorney to do his dirty work, Bobby had some undercover work of his own to do. Descending the tower, he fired a text to the gal he had seen when he arrived earlier. He had grabbed her number as they went separate ways. The text began bouncing. Him. Make it 5.30. I'll come to you. What's your address? Within seconds, a response. 
Her pushy little puppy, huh? She typed, adding a happy face emoticon. Him, more like an eager beaver. In seconds, her address and gate code pinged his phone, along with a photo that made Boppy want to give her the ride of her life. Chapter 49. Shit Show. Back in the office, Stuart was sipping on a coffee. Without a word, he pointed his forehead toward my desk. I took a seat and untwisted the string on the huge interdepartmental manila envelope. In the well-worn envelope was a smaller envelope, marked Classified. I looked over to see Stuart bobbing his head like a kid ready to spill the answer to a quiz when it wasn't his turn. Opening the second envelope, I found Bobby's rap sheet, but with new pages. Skimming, I realized what we had found earlier was just the tip of the iceberg. Holy freaks, Stu. Exactly. Look how far back the trail of that shitbag goes start at the top. My eyes fell on several dates. At Bobby's 14th birthday, his father was either coming off or climbing aboard a bender and gave his son a black eye and dislocated his wife's shoulder. First offense. Two years later, Dad shows up to his son's football game and proceeds to shout obscenities at Bobby and then the coach's team. By the end of the game, Frank the father is completely shit-faced and picks a fight with the coach in the parking lot. Bobby's mother said something. Frank throws her to the ground, twisting her ankle in the process. Bobby steps in only to get his nose broken before Frank goes after the coach, swinging at him with a football helmet. He takes out the man's two front teeth and the coach press charges. Later, he would agree to drop the charges, but on three conditions. He pays for all damages, agrees to 40 hours of community service, and lets his son pursue a football career. I look to Stuart. Keep going. It gets better. Bobby's graduating year, Frank returns home after pulling an 18-month stint at Pleasant Valley State Prison for aggravated assault, taking a tire iron to a body shop mechanic over a bill dispute. Frank pretends to make nice with the family until he polishes off a fifth of vodka and goes after his son with a baseball bat, taunting him about being too stupid for college. Things get complicated when his mother jumps in to break things up, which results in getting her nose broken. Given Bobby had grown since his father went away, thanks to weightlifting and steroids, he goes after Frank with a blind fury, breaking his father's nose and his jaw in two places. Adding insult to injury, Bobby shattered several bones in his hand, which ruined his chance of finishing the season as quarterback. Weeks later, after his parents' injuries heal, his mother asked for a divorce. Frank begs his wife for just one more chance, swearing he will change. Sadly, she agreed. You can't make this shit up, I said, shaking my head. Right? I'll be right back. I kept reading. Three months later and on the night before high school graduation, Bobby's mother was hosting a party. Frank and a woman showed up under the influence of several substances. After Bobby's mother begs for Frank to leave for good, an argument breaks out. Frank goes after his wife with a steak knife. Bobby steps in and Frank gets stabbed in the stomach. Before the EMT could arrive, Frank bled out on the kitchen floor. Charges were dropped when Bobby's mother testified her son was acting in self-defense. Bobby walked, and his mother eventually recovered. As I finished, Stuart returned with two fresh coffees. Pretty effed up, huh? <laughs> yeah, I said, blowing to cool my coffee. Apple doesn't fall far. Well, before you get all warm and fuzzy on your guy, here's something else. He flipped open his notepad. All right, Christmas that same year, his mother was killed in an auto accident on the way to work. The other driver dies, and his family sues. Not sure the reason, but it was deemed her fault. 
Her parents never had insurance, so he couldn't pay off the mortgage, and it was foreclosed. He ended up having no career in football because of the injury, thanks to his dad. His life had become a shit show, so he left town and moved here to live with a cousin, who happened to be a television director. He's been in showbiz ever since. Damn, something felt wonky, so I flipped through the file. All right, last name Shapiro, but his father and mother's name, Jackson. According to a counselor I spoke with, he wanted to forget his past so badly, he changed his name to his cousin's. Odd? Maybe. Certainly helps us understand his state of mind better, I suppose. Mm, you mean his having a grade-A clusterfuck of an adolescence? <laughs> yeah. Do you suppose it really was self-defense? Mm, would it matter? Good point. And no. All right, well, how about seeing if we can uh, cheer ourselves up with another potential suspect? Chapter 50, Pearl Necklace. Bobby showed up at Elizabeth's condo in Brentwood and was about to knock when she opened the door with a presentation of a suburban housewife at Halloween. Holy wow! Her long sheer dress was black and left nothing to the imagination. Bobby admired the tiny black panties and matching push-up that enhanced her perfect body. She was more magnificent than he had even imagined. God, she looks like Meredith. Well, are you gonna just stand there gawking? Fifty minutes, four cocktails, several lines of coke, and a handful of orgasms between the two of them later, Elizabeth and Bobby were lying in a pile of sweat-soaked sheets in her king-size playpen, complete with leather straps, handcuffs, and more. Both were on their backs, catching their breath and laughing at the randomness of their hookup. Uh, bet you don't do this every day. Uh, and you would lose that bet, Bobby? <laughs> or is it Robert? Or just Bob? It's whatever you want to call me, Elizabeth. Or is it Beth or Lizzie? They laughed as she climbed on top of him. All aboard the Bobby train, she said, rubbing back and forth along his crotch. Chew, fucking chew, he grinned. Amazing what a fistful of drugs can add to a party, he thought. Well, what do we have here, Mr. Cocky? What's it look like, Professor? Ready for another go around? As they began, he said, Do you really do this every day? His grip increased. To complete strangers? I'm what's known as a sex addict. <laughs> I can't help myself. You're a bad little girl, aren't you? He growled with a dissolving smile. Bobby, you're hurting me. Thrusting harder, he said, I know, but you like it. Actually, ow, I don't. Please stop. I can't. Her legs were going numb from his grip. Wait, why not? Because I'm what's known as a sex addict. Bobby, stop. Ow, ooh, you're really hurting. In one swift move, he lifted her in the air and flipped her on her back, straddling her and pinning both arms. Remember when you said you liked, what do you call it, erotic asphyxiation? Her eyes widened and breathing increased. That was before. Now you're really hurting me. Her eyes flicked toward the nightstand. He followed her look. Huh, what, another sex toy you haven't showed me? Hmm? She shook her head. I thought we'd seen them all. Leaning over to open the drawer, his eyes ignited with anger. What the fuck do we have here? He slowly removed a handgun with two fingers. 
You didn't answer my question. As he released her arms, she shook them, trying to regain circulation. It's a gun, Bobby. What do you think it is? Now get the fuck off of me, you ignorant Neanderthal. If there had been even a hint of warmth in his eyes, it just went ice cold. I know what it is. That's not the question. She licked her lips. What? The question about erotic asphyxiation. Dropping the gun, he wrapped both hands around her neck. Like this, she kicked violently. He squeezed harder. She continued to kick until she could no longer. Looking up and down her beautiful, motionless body, he said, Yeah, where's all that passion now, my little sex addict? (laughs) Showered and dressed, Bobby put on his watch and buttoned his sleeves while surveying the room. He put the handgun in his jacket and wiped everything down. Next, he picked up his cell phone and stopped the camera from recording before changing it to photo mode. Putting straps around her wrists and ankles, he attached them to her neck, then tied them off to the bed. Placing something in the palm of her hand, he stepped back for a final photo. Seems like a lot of work to get yourself off, he sneered. For good. At the door, he blew a kiss and left. Thanks for listening to the audiobook version of my thriller, The Poser, starring rookie detective Pat Norelli. I hope you enjoyed chapters 26 to 50, and I hope you'll join me next Tuesday for yet another edition of our bonus podcast, where you will hear chapters 51 to 75. This programming note, please join me this Friday the 20th when my special guest will be Don Bentley, author of the Matt Drake series. Don's also one of the writers for the Tom Clancy thrillers, specifically Target Acquired, which came out this past June. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time in the Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.